Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we join the TARDIS crew as they face an old foe in the London Underground. We will be discussing the Doctor, the companions, the villains, and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on the story. So to join on the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Paddy, I'll hand it over to you for our story recap. Excellent. Episode 1. Jamie manages to make his way to the console to shut the doors, narrowly avoiding being sucked into the time vortex. The TARDIS manages to stabilise itself, and the Doctor asks for suggestions as to their next destination. Jamie points out that he still can't properly pilot the ship, and the Doctor steps up to the challenge. In an exhibition room of a private house, an older Professor Travers is gazing at an inanimate form of a yeti. His daughter Anne comes to collect him since he did not meet her at the airport as they previously agreed. Travers seems distracted as Anne questions him about a telegram he sent her mentioning that he is in a great deal of trouble. The owner of the house, a man named Julius Silverstein, enters and Travers demands that he give him back the Yeti which he previously sold him. Travers says that they are in danger as he has managed to reactivate a control sphere for the Yeti but it has vanished mysteriously. Julius thinks it is a scam to get back the valuable exhibit and the two men trade insults but Julius demands that Anne take her father away. Anne says that he probably just misplaced the sphere and says that they should go home and look for it together. After Julius escorts him from the room, the control sphere appears at the window and breaks into the exhibition room. Julius goes to investigate the sound and is killed by the reactivated Yeti. Back on the TARDIS, Jamie is adamant that he saw a light flash in the control console, but the doctor says that he can't have, as that light only flashes when they are landing, but they are still in motion. Victoria also sees it, and the doctor thinks they are trying to trick him, but then he sees it as well. The TARDIS starts to make its dematerialization sounds, but they sound more strained than usual, and the Doctor turns to the scanner to see where they are, only to find that they appear to be suspended in space. Outside, the TARDIS slowly starts to become enveloped in a strange web-like substance. The Doctor and Jamie do a systems check, and Victoria brings their attention to the scanner, which now shows the web covering the screen. The Doctor then says something or someone is holding them there on purpose. The Doctor rigs up a machine which he says will be useful once they are let go. Jamie indicates that the web is dissolving and the Doctor hurriedly attaches the device to the console and tells the others to hold on when they begin to land. After a false start, the trio are thrown to the floor as the TARDIS completes its landing sequence. The Doctor then says that they have landed about a mile and a half from where they were originally intended and looking at the scanner, it appears that they have landed in an underground tunnel. In an underground bunker, an army officer named Captain Knight is being interviewed about his deceased superior officer by a man named Chorley, who is a representative of London Television. Our corporal enters the room and announces it the arrival of Travers, who bursts into the room. Knight reveals that he did not want Travers to be there, but Anne insisted that he be brought in. Knight then leaves and Charlie starts to interview Travers about the current situation they are experiencing, and whether or not they will be spearheading the scientific section. Travers simply states before leaving that the menace they are facing could wipe out the entire country. The travellers enter the dark tunnel and after a bit of exploration, the Doctor discovers that they are at the Covent Garden stop for the London Underground. The doctor comments that it is most likely late at night, hence the lack of power in the tunnels, but after climbing to street level, they see that it is broad daylight. Victoria then points out that there is absolutely no sound whatsoever, and Jamie points out an old man sitting by the entrance. He goes to ask him a question, but the man falls over after being touched, and the group see that he is covered in webs. Beside him is a newsstand with a placard saying, Londoners flee, menace spreads. The gate to the street is locked, and the doctor suggests walking to the next station, despite Victoria's reluctance to do so. Jamie then hops down into the tracks and the doctor cries out for him to be careful and not touch the rails. He then takes out a voltmeter and sees that there is no power currently going through the rails and he informs Jamie that he would have been electrocuted if they had been active. 
They then make their way down the tunnels. As they continue on, the doctor notes that there has been no train activity in the tunnels for some time. Jamie then notices a power cable running across the tracks. Before they can discuss it, they hear footsteps approaching and hide in the shadows. They see a trio of soldiers pick up the cable and continue to unspool it back towards Covent Garden. The doctor says that Jamie and Victoria should follow the soldiers whilst he goes and see where the cable is originating from, and then they head their separate ways. Jamie and Victoria follow the soldiers at a distance, but Victoria accidentally lets out a gasp when she walks into a cobweb. The trio of soldiers, made up of Staff Sergeant Arnold, Corporal Blake and Craftsman Weems, are alerted due to the echoing nature of the tunnels and apprehend the young duo. The doctor, meanwhile, has followed the cable to the next station at Charing Cross, and he notices a pile of explosive crates on the platform connected to the cable. He then hides when he hears the familiar beeping of the Yeti control sphere and manages to take cover just as the Yeti appears on the platform. In the underground bunker, Knight is getting an update from the communications officer, Corporal Lane, when Anne enters with a repaired blast recorder. He goes to help her with it, but Charlie comes in and complains about Trevor's lack of cooperation, but Knight escorts him from the room. Back at Charing Cross, another Yeti appears, and they both use strange devices to coat the explosives in a layer of webbing. Arnold reports back to Knight, interrupting his unsuccessful flirting with Anne, and tells him the cabling has been laid, and he also reports the capture of Jamie and Victoria. Knight is taken aback at this information, but Anne insists that they need to ensure that the tunnels are empty before they blow them up. Arnold goes back and questions the young duo, and Jamie says that they were alone in the tunnels. Knight enters to get confirmation of the tunnels being closed, and once he goes, Arnold tells them about the explosives. Victoria then says that the doctor is in the tunnels, but it's too late as Knight gives the order for the tunnels to be blown. At Charing Cross, the doctor is investigating the webbing when the force of the explosion throws him from the platform. Episode 2 In their impromptu jail cell, Jamie is coping with the guilt of potentially causing the doctor's death and demands to be let out. Arnold reports to Knight about the presence of the doctor in the tunnels and asks to go and look for him. Knight grants permission and turns to Weems who says that the blast recorder is faulty and Anne points out that they didn't hear any explosions. Weems suggests that the doctor could have potentially tampered with the cabling. Knight then says he will go and question their prisoners and he goes and meet the despondent duo with Anne and Chorley. Chorley tries to get answers from them, much to Knight's annoyance, but he is interrupted when Weems enters and informs them of a potential Yeti attack at their supply base in Holborn. The mention of the Yeti shocked both Jamie and Victoria, but Knight doesn't seem to notice as he and Chorley go back to the command room and listen to the sounds of gunfire and screams over the telephone. Knight then orders a squad to assemble so that they can investigate, but Chorley elects to stay behind. At Charing Cross, Arnold and another soldier discover the crates of explosives destroyed amidst a pile of webbing, but they notice that there is no blast damage anywhere. They press on in their search for the doctor, thinking he had something to do with it. In his lab in the underground bunker, Travers is fiddling with a control sphere when Anne enters and informs him about the two prisoners. He amazed that they seem to know so much about the Yeti and he rushes to see them. In their cell, Jamie tells Victoria that the great intelligence must be behind the current situation and they're enslaving in space. Before they can discuss its motives, Travers bursts in and gets into a confrontation with Jamie, but Victoria smooths the situation over when she recognises the older Travers and reintroduces herself and Jamie to him. Travers is amazed at the revelation, as it has been 40 years since the events in Tibet. When they tell him about the doctor, he takes Jamie to see if there is any word about him, and he leaves Victoria to explain things to Anne. Arnold has returned and been informed at the events of Holborn and Knight's departure. Jamie and Travers appear and ask about the Doctor and are shocked when Arnold accuses him of tampering with the explosives. Travers denies this and says the Doctor may be the only person capable of helping them and Jamie goes to leave to find him, suggesting he could be injured. Arnold says that they saw no sign of him in the tunnels but doesn't think that the Yeti's got him. Jamie thinks he may know where he went and Arnold agrees to take him back into the tunnels. In the cell, Anne is incredulous at Victoria's story but can't deny the secret facts that only those present 40 years ago would know. Chorley interrupts again, looking for his typewriter and lamenting the fact that no one will talk to him about anything. 
and highlights that it was most likely due to his reputation for distorting the facts to make for a juicier story. Chorley takes offence at this and states that he wants to be able to write the whole truth when the mission succeeds. Anne says that success is not guaranteed due to the presence of the Yeti and Chorley then questions Victoria about them, believing that she and Jamie know more about them than they are letting on. He also accuses the Doctor of the sabotage and informs them that Jamie has gone back into the tunnels to look for him with Arnold. At Holborn, Knight and one of his men are finishing a defensive barricade made up of explosives that the now dead supply team had been preparing. The rest of his men are down the tunnels attempting to hold off the Yeti, but to no avail, as the Yetis killed them with a mixture of brute force and the web guns. Jamie and Arnold arrive and Knight and his remaining men fall back to their position so Knight can destroy the barricade from a distance. They then watch as the Yetis coat the explosives in webbing as they did at Charing Cross. Knight fires at the barricade in an attempt to blow it up, but as before, the webbing absorbs the explosion and the Yetis continue their advance towards the soldiers, with more of them appearing from behind to cut off their escape. They are held under guard, but then the Yetis move off when a strange beeping sound fills the air. Jamie suggests following them, but Knight says that they shouldn't push their luck. In his lab, Travis goes out when Anne tells him that Chorley told Victoria about Jamie going into the tunnels, but Anne says that she asked her to make some tea for them to take their mind off things. Victoria comes back to the lab, but stops when she catches the tail end of their conversation, where Anne highlights the curiosity of the doctor being in attendance both times that her father encountered the Yetis, and suggests that he is the one controlling them. Victoria delivers the tea and then departs, and Anne worries that she may have overheard them, but Travers is adamant that the doctor is their ally, and Anne agrees that she is just jumping at shallows. In the control room, Weems and Blake are discussing their various theories of the origins of the web and the Yetis and how to dispose of them. Weems then notices the electronic map of the underground system start to flash, indicating that the webbing of the tunnels has advanced into a new section. Blake reports this to Travers and Anne, and they rush back to the board where they can see that it has continued to advance at a rapid rate. Chorley arrives and echoes his previous suspicions of the Doctor and the others. Travers again defends the travellers, saying that Jamie would not have left Victoria behind if they were spies, but Blake informs him that she is missing. In actuality, she has gone into the tunnels to look for Jamie and the Doctor. Weems then brings their attention back to the map to show the webbing advancing towards the last recorded position of Knight's group. In the tunnel, Jamie and the soldiers hear the sounds of singing approach and they take cover. A soldier comes into view and when they approach him he seems to be in a very laid back mood. He gives his name as Private Evans and he was originally tasked with taking explosives from Holborn back to the main base, but they were ambushed and he has been in the tunnels ever since trying to avoid the Yeti and the advancing webbing. He reveals that he saw a Yeti carrying a small crystal pyramid, and Jamie tells Knight that if they destroy it, then they will stop the Great Intelligence, who he assumes to be behind their current crisis. Evans reveals that he last saw the webbing at King's Cross, which is near the base, and Knight says that they need to get back. Jamie refuses to go without looking for the Doctor, and says that he will take the risk and try and smash the crystal pyramid. Evans volunteers to stay behind, but after the rest of the soldiers leave, he admits that he will escape the first chance he gets. They then make their way down the circle line towards Monument. In the base, Travers and the others watch as the webbing continues to advance and cut off more sections of the underground system. Chorley suggests that they should evacuate, but Travers refuses to go, a stance that is echoed by Knight as he enters the room. Both groups catch each other up and watch as the webbing continues to take over the entire circle line, with the exception of Monument, where Jamie and Evans have just entered. The two men watch in horror as both sides of the tunnel start to fill with webbing, but they then clutch their ears in agony as a loud screeching sound fills the air. Episode 3. The stricken duo watches a yeti emerges from the webbing carrying a small crystal pyramid. Jamie urges Evans to shoot it, and after several attempts, he succeeds in hitting it, causing it to explode and immobilize the yeti. However, the webbing still continues to advance, and so the two men dash into one of the nearby alcoves. Elsewhere in the tunnels, Victoria continues looking for her friends and reacts in shock when the doctor appears behind her, accompanied by another military officer. He cuts across the happy reunion between the two friends and asks if there is anyone else in the tunnels. 
Victoria informs him about Jamie and the soldiers from the bunker and then tells the doctor about Travers and what she overheard when he was speaking to Anne. The officer decides to take them back to the base so he can be brought up to speed. Back at the base, Knight and the others look at the electronic map and see that the entirety of the circle line is now covered in webbing. A soldier enters and says Victoria and the two men have arrived and Knight seems shocked when the soldier identifies himself as a colonel. A soldier enters and says that Victoria and the two men have arrived and Knight seems to be shocked when the soldier identifies the officer as a colonel. Knight goes to meet them and he sends Anne to get her father so he can speak to the doctor. While they are waiting in the common room, the doctor whispers to Victoria what happened to him in the tunnels. He says the force of the explosion knocked him out and when he came to, he explored into the nearby tunnels and then bumped into the colonel. They then begin to discuss the likelihood that the great intelligence is involved due to the presence of both the Yeti and Travers. Their discussion is stopped when Knight arrives and the officer introduces himself as Colonel Lethbridge Stewart and that he is now the new commanding officer in charge, as he has been sent to replace Knight's dead superior. He commends Knight when he asks to see his orders and informs him that he was attached to the ammunition party at Holborn. He says that he managed to escape in the confusion of the Yeti ambush and wandered the tunnels until he met the doctor. Knight is still wary of him, but Travers arrives and delightedly greets the doctor before telling Knight that he will take the doctor and Victoria down to his lab. However, Lethbridge Stewart doesn't seem overly impressed with the idea of Travers acting as if he is in charge of the base. In the lab, the doctor recounts his time in the tunnel to Travers and Anne, and he mentions what Victoria overheard, but they all clear it up as a misunderstanding and discuss the motives of the Great Intelligence, who they all now agree is behind things. The doctor wonders how the Great Intelligence could have survived, and Travers reveals that he took bits of broken machinery, yetis, and spheres from the hidden control room in Padma Samavel's prayer room at the monastery in Tibet. He says that he tinkered with them to see how they worked and ended up fully repairing one of the spheres, which then disappeared. The Doctor realises that the Great Intelligence could have used it as a beacon to latch on to, to escape from the astral plane. Knight enters and says Lethbridge Stewart has summoned them all to the common room for a briefing to get up to speed on things. Victoria asks him if they have any news on Jamie, but he responds in the negative. Elsewhere, Chorley demands to be left out, but Arnold refuses to let him go, saying that it's too dangerous to go out into the tunnels, but he mentions a maintenance stairway that goes up to the surface and Chorley goes to investigate it. In the tunnels, Jamie and Evans arrive at the St. Paul station on the central line, and Evans says that he plans to escape at the next station, and suggests Jamie come with him. However, Jamie carries on down the tunnel by himself. Back in the briefing room, Lethbridge, Stewart and Knight relay the events of what has been going on to the Doctor. A strange mist first appeared that swallowed up anyone that entered it. The mist then became the webbing, and two days later the Yeti first appeared. The Doctor and Travers noticed that they all looked different from the ones that they encountered in Tibet. Lethbridge Stewart tells the Doctor and both Anne and Travers that the fate of the country now rests in their hands. Anne says that they have been working on something to potentially disrupt communications between the Yeti, but they need to get more equipment, which is difficult to organise as the webbing blocks radio transmissions. Chorley then bursts in and insists that they use the maintenance stairway to escape to the surface for a helicopter rescue, but Lethbridge Stewart dismisses the idea and goes back to the briefing when Chorley storms out. Chorley goes to the control room to ask Weems about the tall buildings on the surface but Weems notices that the webbing is spreading again and he rushes off to inform the others. Back in the tunnels, Jamie hears something behind him and goes into hiding, and then springs out as Evan walks past. The frightened soldier says that he had an attack of conscience and came back to help Jamie, but when pressed, he admits that the gates to the surface were locked and so he came back. In the control room, Lethbridge Stewart watches the map as the webbing spreads to cover the entire central line. Charlie demands to speak to him, but Lethbridge Stewart decides to placate his ego and gets him to out of the way at the same time by suggesting that he set up shop in the common room where he can act as a liaison between the various groups as they go about their tasks and he can take stock of all their progress reports. He then turns to the doctor to see if he has any ideas and the doctor suggests blowing up the tunnels around their position to seal them off from the yetis and buy themselves some time. He suggests using a rolling cart to deliver the explosives so they cannot be webbed up by any nearby yeti. 
He and Travers then go to rig up a detonator and Lethbridge Stewart goes to the reconnoiter the base. In the lab, Victoria is examining a miniature figure of the Yeti, much like the ones she saw in Tibet. The doctor comes in and she shows it to him and he asks if it has been deactivated. Anne says that it and its three partners were deactivated, but Victoria points out that there are only two miniatures left on the table, a fact which alarms the doctor. Travers then enters with the detonator and Victoria voices her concerns that blowing up the tunnels will cut Jamie off from reaching them. As everyone is going about their tasks, an unseen person unlocks the door into the base. The figure then takes the miniature of the Yeti and places it on the floor where it starts to beep. In one of the nearby tunnels, its real-life counterpart starts to move down towards the base. It reaches the base and makes its way inside and approaches the model, which is on the floor by a padlock munitions room. Later, the doctor is running through the plan again with Lethbridge Stewart when Aaron reports the front door was unlocked and moments later Blake arrives and shows them the broken padlock and the Yeti figure. They all then rush to the munitions room where they find the explosives inside covered in webbing, rendering them useless. Arnold is dispatched to search the base for any sign of the Yeti, whilst Lethbridge Stewart says that their only hope is to try and find some of the leftover explosives back at Holborn. Arnold returns and reports that there is no sign of the Yeti, and so Lethbridge Stewart orders him to inform everyone, bar Chorley, about the new mission to Holborn. Once they are alone, the Doctor voices his concern that someone inside the base is a traitor. After Lethbridge Stewart leaves, the Doctor goes to find Victoria, who is in the con room, talking to Chorley about the plan to blow up the tunnel, and she accidentally reveals the existence of the TARDIS to him. Chorley then leaves and Victoria informs the Doctor of their discussion. The Doctor realises that Chorley will most likely try and get into the TARDIS and they discover that they had been locked inside the room. The door is suddenly opened by Jamie and Evans who reveal that they passed Chorley in the tunnels a few moments ago. The Doctor and Jamie then take off in pursuit of him. In the lab, Travers and Anne are waiting for the Doctor when they hear a scream. Travers rushes off to find the source and discovers Weems' dead body in the command room. He spots the Yeti figurine beside him and when he picks it, its real-life counterpart attacks him from behind. Episode 4 Anne rushes in to save her father but gets knocked out by a second yeti. The yetis then leave taking the unconscious Travers with them. In the tunnels, Knight and his reconnaissance party return to Redford Stewart and inform him that the way to Holborn is blocked off but they still might be able to access it via the Piccadilly line. The Doctor, Jamie and Victoria are accompanied by Evans as they rush to stop Chorley from getting to the TARDIS. However, they find the way to the ship blocked off by webbing but they have no way of knowing if Chorley got through before it arrived or not. They take samples of the webbing, which emits a loud shrieking sound when the Doctor cuts into it. They then continue down the tunnels and encounter Arnold as he is scouting the path ahead, and he informs them of the plan to reach Holborn before suggesting that they should return to the base. Back at the base, the travellers discover the main door torn open and the web-covered bodies of the guards. The Doctor finds Anne and helps bring her around. She tells them that the Yetis took her father. The Doctor tells Jamie and Victoria to take her to the common room, and once they are gone, he wonders why the Yetis took Travers instead of killing him. Lethbridge, Stewart and Knight return with their men and the Doctor informs them about Charlie leaving and the events that happened while they were gone. Blake then arrives and summons them to the command room to show them the webbing advancing again. Lethbridge, Stewart then discusses the Doctor's earlier comments about a potential traitor in their midst and both he and Knight suspect Travers. The Doctor suggests it could be Charlie but points out that there is a chance that they could still be in the base. Lethbridge, Stewart then asks about the Great Intelligence and the Doctor does his best to describe it to him and he admits that it brought him here as well. He then tells them about the TARDIS and whilst Knight is sceptical of it, Lethbridge Stewart takes a keen interest in it and asks if it could be used to evacuate them from the base if they could recover it. Jamie then arrives and says that Anne wants to talk to the Doctor and once he leaves, the two soldiers discuss the Doctor's claims. Knight thinks the whole thing is a hoax, but Lethbridge Stewart insists that they must explore every avenue of escape as their mission is on the brink of failure. Knight goes to organise a squad to recover the TARDIS, but before he leaves, he points out the Doctor could be luring them into a trap. 
The doctor and the others consoled despondent Anne, and he says that their best chance at saving her father is to find the central control unit, which will most likely lead them to the great intelligence. He then asks what Travers was working on when he was abducted, and she tells them that they were working on reactivating one of the broken control spheres. The doctor takes her back to the lab, and Victoria ponders on his earlier comments about the great intelligence being one step ahead of them. In the lab, the doctor examines the sphere, and Anne shows him another device Travers was working on, which would allow the sphere to work without being controlled by the great intelligence. He starts to work on it when Evans arrives bearing a miniature Yeti that he was given by Arnold. The Doctor notices that it has been reprogrammed to act as a homing device, and Anne then points out that the other figurines have gone missing. Evans thinks that he is being suspected of being the traitor, and hands over the tin with the webbing in it that the Doctor had given him. He then leaves after the Doctor says that they are all under suspicion, even himself. In the command room, Lethbridge Stewart outlines the plan to recover the TARDIS to the rest of the men, and he tasks Knight with staying behind to guard the others. Jamie goes to relate this to the Doctor, who opens the tin to find it empty, leading him to suspect Evans is indeed the traitor. In the tunnels, Evans once again says that he shouldn't be involved with the operation as he is merely a driver, but Arnold berates him for his cowardly attitude and takes him and another soldier to try and retrieve the TARDIS via baggage trolley. They reach the webbing blocking off the TARDIS and Arnold and the other soldier take the trolley through whilst Evans will stay behind manning a rope to pull them back if needs be. They don't get very far before they scream in agony and Evans pulls the rope back, but only the other soldier's body is on the trolley, covered in webs. On the streets, Lethbridge Stewart's group encounters dozens of Yeti, and a pitched battle between the two forces ensue, with several soldiers being killed and Yetis destroyed via grenades and bazooka rounds, a small arms fire proves to be ineffective. In the lab, the doctor requests permission to go up to the street level in order to find some electronics that he needs to complete his work on Travers' device, and Knight reluctantly agrees to go with him after being persuaded by Anne. After they reach street level, they can hear the sounds of the battle in the distance. They find an electronic shop, and the Doctor nearly gets everything he needs before they are attacked by two Yeti. The Doctor is knocked to the ground as he vainly beats at a Yeti in an attempt to save Knight. The Yetis then turn their attention to him, but leave when they hear the sound of a beacon. The Doctor goes to Knight's body and sees one of the Yeti figurines sticking out of his pocket. He returns to the lab and finds a recently returned Evans, who again insists that he is innocent. The Doctor says that he have accounted for two of the three missing figurines, which means that there is one somewhere else or on someone else. He then breaks the figurines to take them out of the equation. Lethbridge Stewart returns and despairingly says that he is the only survivor of his group, and they tell him that he and Evans are the only remaining soldiers. They suddenly hear a beacon, and the Doctor says it is coming from Lethbridge Stewart's pocket. The Doctor takes it and rushes to destroy it, but two Yeti enter the lab, accompanied by a catatonic Travers. Episode 5 The Great Intelligence speaks to Travers and reveals the purpose of its plan, which was to trap the Doctor so it could absorb his limitless brain power, knowledge and experience, leaving him alive but mentally akin to a newborn baby. The Great Intelligence then says that if he refuses, it will then use the device it created for its purpose on Jamie and Victoria instead, first before using it on as many people to gain the equivalent it would have had received from the Doctor. It then says that if the Doctor submits willingly, then it will allow the others, including Travers, to go free. When the Doctor asks who the traitor is, the Great Intelligence grows angry and takes Victoria hostage, giving the Doctor 20 minutes to decide. Jamie tries to go after them, but Lethbridge Stewart tries to stop him, pointing out that they have no weapons to combat the Yetis that are waiting outside. The Doctor tries to calm Jamie down by saying that the Great Intelligence can't risk hurting Victoria, because it knows the Doctor would refuse to cooperate if it did. Evans raises the question as to why they don't just hand over the Doctor. Jamie gets angry at this, but the Doctor agrees that if he can't come up with a solution in the allotted time, then he will willingly give himself up. He then tells Jamie that he will be responsible for caring for both Victoria and the Doctor himself, given his soon-to-be infantile capabilities. Evans then brings their attention to the fact that there is no sound from outside, and he opens the doors to see the Yeti's gone. 
Lefford Stewart tells Jamie and Evans to come with him to search the base, whilst the Doctor and Anne will stay behind to come up with a plan. The Doctor says that they might have a chance if they can finish the device Travers was working on to control the sphere. Meanwhile, the other group finds the base completely empty. Jamie suggests that they should go up into the streets and try and get ahead of Travers' group in order to ambush them. Lethbridge Stewart's caution and Evans' cowardice frustrate the young Highlander and instead decides to go by himself. Lethbridge Stewart decides to go with him and he orders Evans to stay behind to protect the Doctor and Anne. However, the door to the surface is blocked off by the webbing and it attempts to get in. Lethbridge Stewart holds it closed and tells Jamie to open the nearby fire exit so they can escape back to the base. He barely manages to keep the door shut until Jamie calls him on and the webbing bursts through bare moments after he moves. The duo then report this development to the Doctor, who has managed to get to the sphere working again, which tries to move away towards the tunnels. Jamie and Lethbridge Stewart don't seem overly impressed with the progress made so far, but agree to let him and Anne continue on their work on the control box. They make their way into the control room where Evans holds them at gunpoint, saying that he believes one of them to be the traitor. However, they brush off his delusions, and Lethbridge Stewart orders him to stand guard outside the lab, but Evans refuses, saying that he has a much better tactical viewpoint from the command room. The duo then decide to try following Travers' group through the tunnels. At the Piccadilly Circus station, Victoria begs Travers to let go of her wrist as he is hurting her. The disembodied voice of the Great Intelligence instructs him to do so, and it tells Victoria not to be afraid. It then releases its hold on Travers and promises to reveal itself to them very soon. Victoria fills the day's Travers in on things, and he suggests that they try and escape, but they are stopped by a yeti emerging from the tunnel. They then sit back despondent and wait for the time to run out. After a few moments, one of the yeti guarding them suddenly moves away, and they hear someone whisper to them from behind. The voice belongs to a wounded Arnold, who promises to go back to the base to tell the doctor where they are. After he leaves, the yeti returns, and alongside its counterpart, shepherds the prisoners further into the station. Back in the lab, the Doctor and Anne successfully manage to stop a sphere using the control box, but it only works from close range, which will still leave them at risk from any Yeti where they encounter. The Doctor says that they should use their remaining 12 minutes to try and reprogram the sphere to obey their verbal commands. They then decide to try the success of their device by ordering it into the command room where it is nearly destroyed by Jumbie Evans. They tell him that they plan to use it to control a Yeti, but he refuses to go with them due to the danger involved. They decide to go off without him. In the tunnels, Jamie is starting to grow suspicious of Lethbridge Stewart, with Evans' paranoia playing on his mind. However, he puts his suspicions aside when he notices Victoria's necklace on the tracks, indicating that they are going in the right direction. After a few minutes, they come across Arnold, who tells them that about Victoria and Travers. Jamie wants to go ahead to try and rescue them, but Lethbridge Stewart says that they will have a greater chance if they get help from the others, so they make their way back to the base. The trio return to the command room, where they find Evans hiding. After overcoming his shock at seeing Arnold with, with them, he informs him of the Doctor and Anne's plan to st- try and capture a yeti somewhere along the Warren Street line. Arnold points out that the area is covered in webbing according to the electronic map, and Lethbridge Stewart tells Jamie that they need to try and help them and for Evans to look after the wounded Arnold. The Doctor and Anne find the way blocked by the webbing, and when they turn back, they come face to face with a yeti. At the last possible moment, it stops due to the control box, and the Doctor then swaps out the control sphere with their reprogrammed one which gives them complete control over the Yeti, which the Doctor decides to name Fred. Back at the base, Evans finishes dressing Arnold's wounds, and when he goes to return the medical supplies to the lab, he screams out in terror as he sees the wall cave in and the mist that turns into the webbing flood the room. Episode 6 Arnold pulls Evans from the room and shuts the door before they escape into the tunnels. Arnold says that he needs to go and warn the others, but Evans deserts him instead. 
Elsewhere, the Doctor says to Anne that until the traitor is revealed, they must suspect everyone, and so they must keep the control of the Yeti a secret. They instruct the Yeti to give them a head start to escape, and once they are gone, it is to resume obeying the great intelligence until told otherwise. They encounter Jamie and Lethbridge Stewart a short while later and tell them about Arnold and the information he gave them about Victoria and Travers. Anne then says that their 20 minutes is almost up and they should get back to the base. They head back down the tunnel and encounter Arnold who tells them about what happened at the base. Suddenly they are surrounded by Yeti and are taken prisoner and the same fate befalls Evans in another tunnel. As they are being led towards Piccadilly, Arnold suggests that he make a break for it and he is able to escape after Leftbridge Stewart creates a diversion for him. Inside the Piccadilly station, Travers and Victoria are led into the main hall where they see a large crystalline pyramid. Victoria spots someone in the corner of the room, but they disappear before she has a chance to identify them. Travers says that he believes the Doctor will give it into the Great Intelligence's demands to avoid getting Victoria hurt, and the Great Intelligence agrees, addressing them over the Tannoy system. It warns them not to interfere, otherwise it will order the Yetis to destroy them. Travers then laments that all these events are his fault. On the platform, the Doctor plays a sad tune on his recorder whilst he and the others await their fate. He then secretly tells Jamie about the converted Yeti, as he still can't trust Lethbridge Stewart. He then gives Jamie the control microphone to summon the Yeti to them. Jamie manages to sneak away and after he is gone, Anne asks why they can't use the control box in the Doctor's pocket to try and take over their guards. However, he says that he needs to face the Great Intelligence, which is assuming that it has won. Lethbridge Stewart then urges the Doctor to give himself up so the Great Intelligence will release the rest of them as it promised. Before they can discuss it further, Evans is brought onto the platform. He tries to tell them that he had planned to rescue Travers and Victoria himself, but none of them believe him. The Doctor is then taken away by a Yeti, and he tells the others not to resist as they too are escorted away. After they are gone, Jamie exits his hiding place in a nearby bin, and he summons the Yeti to him. It soon arrives, but does not appear to obey his commands. He starts to give out about it when another Yeti attacks him from behind. In the tunnel, Chorley runs into Arnold and says that he couldn't get back to the base. He reveals that he was the one in the station that Victoria saw, but he couldn't face the Yetis. Arnold voices his suspicions of him by asking how he managed to survive for so long, but leaves off when Chorley becomes upset and tells Chorley to join him. Back at Piccadilly, the Doctor is presented with a strange headset by a pair of Yetis, but before he can place it on his head, he uses the control box to immobilise them. He makes some adjustments to the circuitry before placing it on his head, reactivating the Yetis who then lead him onwards again. Anne and the others are brought into the main hall where they reunite with Victoria and Travers. A short while later, the doctor is brought in, and he again asks that the others not to do anything rash, or that he will be fine. The Great Intelligence then thanks him for his cooperation, and then Chorley appears and hysterically reveals the traitor to be Arnold, who has been dead the entire time with the Great Intelligence possessing his corpse. He enters the room wearing a similar headset to the doctor's. He then has a captured Jamie brought in and reveals that he never intended to release the others. He then orders Jamie to go to the doctor, but has a yeti grab him by the neck to ensure the doctor's cooperation. However, he has him released when the doctor refuses to help, but warns that Jamie will be the first to die if the doctor tries anything suspicious. He then orders the doctor to enter the pyramid and reminds him that he needs to submit to the process willingly. However, before he starts the process, Jamie orders to control the yeti, which was the one that brought him in, to attack its counterparts. The Doctor calls out for Jamie to stop and tells him that he has ruined everything as he is pulled from the pyramid and Arnold is killed by the Yeti. Jamie destroys the power source attached to the pyramid which causes it to disintegrate and deactivate all the Yetis. The Doctor gives out to everyone that they ruined his plans as his earlier interference with that headset would have reversed the process and mind wiped the Great Intelligence instead. As a result, it has been merely banished back to the Astral Plane. 
The others try to commend him on his victory, and when Charlie tries to arrange a series of press conferences with him, he decides that it is time to leave, and he summons Jamie and Victoria so they can go back to the TARDIS. They bid farewell to everyone and try to navigate their way back to the TARDIS before the normal train services resumes. End of the story. Very good. And I will say one thing. This is possibly the most British of all the Doctor Who stories that we've discussed so far. Because it's just the guys mapping out how best to navigate the London Underground system. This way is blocked. Wait a minute. If we go the circle line, we can get there instead. (laughs) But they're doing works on the circle line. Damn it. (laughs) You've just reminded me of... um do you know that film that I gave you before that I don't know if you ever actually watched it, Peter's Friends? I have watched it, yeah. I still have cleared. Yeah. Uh, do you know the intro to that where you have like Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, Kenneth Branagh, uh, oh, what the fuck's her name? Dolores uh, Umbridge. Yeah. Oh, um, Melda Staunton. Yeah, Melda Staunton and the other person that was in that film with them, whose that, name I've forgotten. That, that isn't really one of the, that particular group you never really see them that person with them ever again i don't think yeah i feel bad now that i've forgotten her name yeah but whatever and they're doing the london underground song that yeah. just reminds me of that one <laughs> now that we've successfully navigated our way out of the london underground <laughs> we're going to find ourselves at trisha's trivia spot <laughs> what do you got for us this week Oh, it's all it's lines. all very it's all very delicately teamed, lads. It's very delicately teamed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, trivia. So the air date for the Web of Fear was the third of February to the 9th of March, nineteen sixty-eight. The writers for the story, probably unsurprising, are Mervyn Heisman and Henry Lincoln. We obviously discussed them before, as they previously wrote the Abominable Snowman. Interesting fact, during the interview between Chorley and Knight at the sort of beginning of episode one, where they talk about the deceased commanding officer, uh, that officer's name is Colonel Pemberton. And apparently this is an in-joke, sort of referencing the former editor, Victor Pemberton, who worked with them on Abominable Snowman. They decided just to give him a little <laughs> give him a little mention there at the end. We will discuss their work again when we talk about the Dominators. The director of the story is Douglas Camfield. We have discussed Dougie several times before. Uh, just a quick recap. He did some of the film sequences with Warris Hussein for An Unearthly Child. He did episode 3 of Planet of Giants. He did The Crusade. He did the location work, or as I call it, the Ian and Barbara montage in The Chase. He did The Time Meddler and The Daleks Master Plan. We still have four more stories of Dougie's to go through, which are going to be The Invasion, Inferno, Terror of the Zygons, and The Seeds of Doom. That's a, again, uh, kind of like in relation, sorry, in the vein of David Whitaker. That's a really healthy back catalogue. Yeah, just, just remove that one episode of the Alex Alex Master, Master Plan, Plan. <laughs> and imagine what the original four-parter of Planet of Giants would have been. Mm. And and you're good. You're good. But like, it, it's crazy to think like that. Just two individuals are responsible for so much classic, classic era stuff. I know it's crazy when you think about it. We mentioned last week that we were saying goodbye to Innsloyd as producer. This week we welcome Peter Bryant. Prior to becoming the full producer, he did actually produce The Tomb of the Cybermen as a test run during Innsloyd's tenure. And he was married to Shirley Cooklin, who appeared in The Tomb of the Cybermen as Kaftan. Ah, yeah. Ah, yeah. <laughs> 
So in terms of watching this story, episodes 1, 2, 4, 5, and 6 have been restored and do exist in the BBC archives. Um, apparently episode 3 was restored at one point and then was stolen, so that didn't work. They do, however, have telesnaps and surviving audio, so the BBC has released a recreated version themselves of episode 3 using the telesnaps and audio that was released on DVD, it's available on Brickbox, etc. So you can watch the story from beginning to end with just that recreated episode in the middle. Mm-hmm. This story will also get a new release later this year, 2021, with this release containing an animated version of the third episode in both black and white and in colour. And as long-term listeners will know, my uh, issue with the episodes, you know, the missing episodes, sometimes not being returned. This is actually a very valuable one in terms of uh, who lore, because it's the first canonical appearance of Leftbridge Stewart. Yeah, and a lot of the... I looked up online, apparently a lot of the theories are the reason why it was stolen yeah. is because it's so valuable. Yeah. And I'm kind of going, what asshole decided I will be the only one who has this in its entirety as opposed to giving it back to the BBC and letting everyone enjoy it. Whoever you are, you're a selfish prick. Come over to Paddy's Rage Pool, the water's fine. <laughs> <laughs> So Patrick Troughton only appears in the reprise of episode two as he was on holiday that week. Again, par for the course. As a result, the first meeting of the Doctor and Lethbridge Stewart actually takes place off screen. Huh. Which is kind of sad, looking back on it. Yeah. But I think um, I think you actually kind of get a really good sense of how that meeting went. Just when, obviously, when they both meet Victoria, it's like, oh, well, this is very, very awkward, I can imagine. <laughs> It's stated that this story takes place about 40 years after the Abominable Snowman, which this story says took place in 1935, which would place this around 1975. Mm. And probably is one of the stories that leads most heavily into what we will discuss at a later stage, which is the unit dating controversy, which is trying to associate what year things take place in the more contemporary stories. Different, like extra material so the novelization and um, there's books about Lethbridge, Lethbridge Stewart they all have different dates for when this took place <laughs> it's really hard to follow but very very fucking cleverly uh it was worked into the 50th anniversary that it's like give me the record well it depends on what we're using you know it depends yeah. on, on which dating system we're using and I'm like crafty fuckers <laughs> question for you Yo. what did you think of the London Underground set um, I thought I like well, you know, as much as you can tell in the black and whiteness of it all, I actually thought it looked pretty good. Okay, I'll tell you one thing. For certain parts of this, I thought they were actually filming in the London Underground. Yeah. And guess what? So did London Transport, <laughs> who filed a complaint with the BBC, saying that they did not give permission for anything to be filmed in the London Underground, only to be told we didn't film the London Underground. It was a set. Whoever that set designer was, fucking A plus dude. Yeah, he's like, he, he hears that, he goes, I can now retire. <laughs> I am undefeated. <laughs> so people who watch the story will notice that the Yeti looks slightly different. It's actually commented upon in the story itself. Mm-hmm. Costume designer Martin Bow kept the same basic design for the Yeti, so they're tall and hairy. But he changed a few things because he didn't want them to look exactly the same for two consecutive stories, which I don't quite understand because they're meant to be 
the Yeti. But they build it in as they're, they're like a Mark II. Do what, they, do what they actually look like? They remind me of owl bears. Yeah, I have this in my notes later on. I might as well say it now. They look like owls with guns. Yeah. <laughs> owls with guns. <laughs> um, but like I, transport puns. <laughs> oh, boo. Fucking boo. Uh, <laughs> you started it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Moving swiftly along. Yeah. Um, there is another in-joke in the BBC reconstruction of episode three. Driver Evans, and I love how he's just called Driver Evans. He doesn't mm. actually have a rank, which is brilliant. <laughs> Driver Evans um, gets the chocolate bar from the vending machine. And on the wrapper, you can see it's called Campfield's Fairy Milk Chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> which obviously is a reference to Dougie Campfield. But it also has to comply with the BBC's policy around product placement. <laughs> <laughs> It's and like, I love that. It's sort of like you know, those um is it Nickelodeon where obviously they want to have like IMAX and stuff, but they can't because product placement. So instead of Apple it's pear. <laughs> but but it's like uh, in South Park, instead of Sony you've got phony and you Um another product placement avoidance is at one point and it really stood out to me actually, there's like a poster for a film. Mm-hmm. And uh, the film is actually Heat of the Night, but they called the film Blockbusters <laughs> because they couldn't have the actual name of the film because that would be product placement. And it actually brings us back to... Give me a B, Mr. Tibbs. Do you remember the paid product placement we had in the Dalek Invasion of Earth? Yes. For Sugar Puffs. Yeah. <laughs> like, has that been the only like product placement we've had in Classic Who up to now? I think it might have been. Well, just to, uh, just to clarify, Dalek Invasion of Earth twenty one fifty AD, Trisha's favorite movie title of all time. It wasn't in twenty one fifty AD. It was in the TV show. No, you said it was in twenty one fifty AD. No. Yeah, it was a trivia note for the that, for that one. Was it? What was the? Was it? Oh, because they funded it. Yeah. Why do I? Why did I have that weird? Oh, Never uh, mind. The whole that this yeah. whole point is irrelevant. So. Yeah. This is why I should look things up in my notes and not just ad hoc say them when they enter my head. <laughs> so we have mentioned before um, that some of the cast and crew had fun with Deborah Watling. Let's put that way. <laughs> there was a lot of banter on set. Um, and apparently one of the many pranks that befell her was there was a scene where the doctor, Jamie and Travers are looking for her and Jamie was meant to find her handkerchief. And for one take... <laughs> Fraser picked up a pair of knickers and said, these are Victoria's, she must have gone this way. (laughs) To which Patrick agrees, yes they are, aren't they? Yes, she must. And then Jack Watling, who, bear in mind, is Deborah Watling's dad, (laughs) said, how do you know they're hers? Which prompted the whole crew to burst out laughing. And I must say, from the outside looking in, (laughs) the stories that Deborah Watling has shared... It, the humour on set it can come across as incredibly sexist mm. but it seems like she had a great sense of humour about everything and it's probably it's probably still sexist to be honest but it seems like she didn't take any offence to it I'll put that way yeah because like you'd be kind of wondering like was like is this around the time herself and Fraser Hines started dating or was like this his subtle courtship <laughs> <laughs> Also, oh. very fucking ballsy to do this on a set with her dad. <laughs> I love that her dad plays into it, though, which is brilliant. Speaking of her dad, let's go on to the cast. So, as Professor Travers, we, of course, have Jack Watling, 
uh, Deborah has recalled, and I mentioned this the last time, that the sight of her dad in old age makeup made her blow several takes by laughing. She just found it too funny, um, <laughs> which I can understand if you like saw your dad dressed up in makeup, it probably make you laugh as well. Mm. Anne Travers is played by Tina Packer. This is I have Anne's in my notes. This is Tina's only Doctor Who acting credit. Her non-Who work includes No Hiding Place, The Avengers, David Copperfield, and Women of Will. As Colonel Lethbridge-Stewart, we have Nicholas Courtney. (sighs) This is not the first time we've spoken about Nick. We saw him in the epic Davix Master Plan, where he played Brett, the person that I firmly believe is overlooked of all of the potential companions. Yep. Because Sarah Kingdom gets mentioned, and Brett never does. And I want justice for Brett. Justice for Brett, and he's yep. he's there as we said. He's longer. He's there longer than Katarina. Yep, he is indeed. So for this story, he was actually originally cast as Captain Knight. However, David Langdon, who'd originally been cast as Lethbridge Stewart, gave up the role, and so Nick was asked to move over to the Lethbridge Stewart role. And a legacy was formed. <laughs> um, if you're a long-time Doctor Who fan, you will have heard of Lethbridge Stewart before. So I think, I feel kind of safe saying that he will be back. <laughs> and when we see him again, we'll talk about Nick in a bit more detail. We have a lot of characters to get through today and Nick deserves a chunk of time to himself. Yeah. Since Nick was playing Lethbridge Stewart as Captain Knight, we had Ralph Watson. This is the second of four acting credits for Ralph. Uh, in Doctor Who. He was also in The Underwater Menace. Let's not hold that against him. <laughs> and we'll see him again in The Monster of Peladon and The Horror of Fang Rock. He actually reprised his role as Knight. Um, there's an audio series, The Diary of River Song. And in Series 6, the story, The Web of Time, he reprised his role as Knight. Okay. Cool. And apparently he also kept one of the little Yeti models from the story. Which is quite cool. Quite a handy piece of memorabilia to have. Ralph's non who acting credits include the Bill, Zed Cards. Did I say cards? I think you said Zed Cards. <laughs> Zed Cards, Dave Allen at Large, Battle of the Sexes, and When the Boat Comes In. As Private Evans. No, it's Driver Evans. Let's face it. <laughs> I'm not going to attempt a Welsh accent, but his catchphrase is, I shouldn't be here. Driver I am, see? Yeah. Driver Evans. Like, it, it, Everywhere I was pulling trivia from, they all called him Driver Evans. I think Private Evans was just you. Yeah. Uh, So Driver Evans is Derek Pollitt. And this is the first of three Doctor Who acting credits for Derek. We'll see him again in The Silurians, and he was also in Shada. His brother Clyde also appeared in Who. Um, We'll see him in The War Games and The Three Doctors. Outside of Who, Derek also appeared in Coronation Street, Zed Cars, The Body Stealers, and The Onadon Line. Derek passed away back in 2010. You asked a couple of weeks ago, how do you pronounce that? Uh, I actually heard it mentioned in an episode of Alan Partridge, and I think it's the Aneedon line. I think that's how the it's Aneedon pronounced. The Aneedon line? I think that's how it's pronounced. Okay, I stand corrected. Thank you for the research. Oh, like, the the Aneedon line. Yeah. Oh, Aneedon sounds... Oh, Aneedon. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'll have to say it again in a minute. So. Yeah, it's, it's an absolutely fantastic sequence where he recreates the first five minutes of The Spy Who Loved Me. It's just fucking hilarious. <laughs> as surely we have John Rallison so this is the only Doctor Who acting credit for John his non-Who credits include The Avengers Freelance Coronation Street Zed Cars again the bingo card is getting great work this week and Swizzlewick 
which is a fun word to say. If we're gonna say something. Yeah, I was actually speaking of the bingo card. Um, so I looked it up there. So one of the shows that we also frequently see is Dixon of Doc Green. Hmm. So Dixon of Doc Green is it's a police procedural, and Zed Car is kind of. Uh, I don't know if it's spun off from it or came. Uh, it just came as a kind of a counterpart because Dixon of Duck Green was very formulaic where Zed Cars apparently was a bit more uh, rough and gritty for the, for mm. the time. And we talk about, you know, all the missing episodes of Doctor Who and all that kind of stuff. Dixon of Duck Green is almost non-existent. Like, oh, yeah, that like, sucks. I think they did like something like 400 plus episodes and it's like, there's like, I think less than a tenth of them surviving. Oh, that sucks. Stupid BBC. Yeah, and Zed Cars has something like nearly 800 and it has about roughly a third of them surviving. Hmm. Yeah, I have seen some clips from Zed Cars because a future companion was in it, and I watched her clips yeah. reasons. Uh, John passed away in 2016. Lastly, as and I'm going to ask you a question about this in a second. As Staff Sergeant Arnold, we have Jack Woolgar. Um, he also voiced the Great Intelligence, which it's a good thing that you don't actually look up the trivia beforehand because that would have been a bit of a giveaway. Yeah, uh, though I'll get into that again later on. Um, this is his only appearance on Who. His non-Who work includes Crossroads, The Aneedon Line. Is that how, he's, how you said it? Yeah, that's how I said The Aneedon okay. Line. The Aneedon Line. The Sweeney, Crown Court, Emmerdale Farm, and In for a Penny. Jack passed away in 1978. I have a question for you, because cool. they make a point of this in the episode. Right. Someone calls him Sergeant, and he said that that's not his rank. What's the difference between a Staff Sergeant and a Sergeant? Because you have Staff Sergeant, but everyone just refers to him as Staff. So. Yeah, so again, I, I put down Staff Sergeant and I suppose, like, see, there's various, in different militaries, there's various levels of kind of NCOs, non-commissioned officers. So, like, for example, in, I think it's more so in the American Marines, there's a gunnery sergeant, but mm. they, all, they only ever refer to that particular person as gunny. They never call him Sergeant or anything like that. I know that from JAG. Yeah, so... um. I, I actually I, I don't know what the difference between a staff sergeant. Uh, presumably, it's like a dedicated non-com to the senior staff, but I I wouldn't be able to give an answer to that now. Like, you know. Okay, here I thought you could shed some light on why they particularly mentioned it in the episode. But okay, no, again, like, that's his role. But like, I suppose it's as I said, it's just the um, colloquialisms for the different militaries. So like, rather than calling him sergeant, you call him staff, or as I said, gunny, or whatever it is. I just wondered, because I, I think someone calls him sergeant, he m- makes a big deal. But maybe if he's a special sergeant that's, you know, for you know, like a dedicated role or something, mm. maybe that's what he meant. Yeah. So we've had our recap and we've done our trivia spot. And now we're on to our character discussion. So we'll have the Doctor, the companions, some of our story-based characters, and the villains. So Paddy, I'm going to hand it over to you first for the man himself. What are your thoughts on the Doctor in this episode? So, another great performance, I thought. We get, uh, from Charlton, uh, we get the usual array of comedy. Come along, Fred. (laughs) 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 Come for walkies, Fred. That's what it was. (laughs) Fucking love that. Uh, Terror... Uh, also some very good guile I, li- I like that um, it, again it's just his f- fantastic facial performances you know uh, some really really good interactions with our supporting cast uh, across the entire board and another very strong supporting cast I thought in this one mm. 
agree. Um, now, that's the positives out of the way. <laughs> You're a fucking bonehead. <laughs> I Okay, you know damn well that Jamie would swim through hellfire for you. So how can you possibly berate him for doing what comes natural to him when he doesn't know what your plan is? Yeah, but in one way, that tantrum at the end, and tantrum is the only word. Oh, it's a complete tantrum. It's a complete tantrum. It's almost perfect for this doctor because it's childish to the extreme. But at the same time, he was quite serious in his thing of like, I think his... I think the tantrum stems from not that Jamie tried to rescue him, but that Jamie wouldn't listen when he kept telling Jamie to stop. Yeah. But I think it, that was his issue. But in the confusion of yetis fighting yetis and people screaming yeah. and everything going on, it's like, come on. Yeah, it's not Jamie's fault, but I think no. that's where it stemmed from. Yeah. Um, the thing that I find is like he gets all freaked out about, what the fuck's his name? I forgot his name. Charlie. Yeah, Charlie. Oh, Charlie will go break into the TARDIS. Surely you lock the door, dumbass. He yeah. can't get in. He doesn't have a key. Also, how the f- like, I, I, no, I know that Salamander made a fucking attempt at it and failed, but Salamander, I would say, is vastly more intelligent than Charlie. Mm. Also, Salamander didn't actually do anything. Salamander walked in the door, which was already open because mm. Jamie helped him in. Like, Jamie helped him in the door. Yeah. And then was going to have Jamie fly the ship. Mm. Oh, no, he didn't he, actually try to do anything himself. Well, he 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 set the ship into motion. That was by accident. <laughs> yeah, but but still, like you know, I oh, know I'm saying what I'm saying. A salamander would be a much bigger threat in the TARDIS than Troy, oh, yeah. who would probably have gotten locked in, like I don't know, a shoe cupboard or something. <laughs> it's quite an impressive boot cupboard. Hmm. Um, for me, I think with this story, I one of the things I love. So I, I sort of mentioned last week that he had a bit of a thing for um, Astrid. Astrid. Yeah, my brain went to Adric. Adric is someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong doctor. <laughs> Wrong doctor. Yeah. Um, they had a thing for Astrid. What I love here is that he's got a great dynamic with Anne. Mm. It's sort of like a science pals dynamic going on there. Not quite like science bros, but no. like a really good working dynamic. The two of them worked really well together and like he showed great respect for her knowledge, which was great. I don't think, and like, this is kind of sad to say now, but I, it's kind of sad to say, but at the same time, I think it makes it special. I don't think, in my recollection, from now on, we will ever have another Science Bros. Which is sad, but at the same time, it just makes the Science Bros a bit more special. Hmm. You kind of, I don't know if I'd call them Science Bros. We have Science Sibs, we'll get to them. Yeah. Science Siblings, we'll get to them soon. You kind of have a Science Bros moment in Robot. Kind of. At the end. Yeah. Do you know? It lasts about five seconds. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think Science Bros was has come and gone, really. Um, I don't know if you got the same sense, but one of the things that I got from this was that we've seen this doctor be like, you know, I, I violence is a no-go. Like, we saw it last week. You should know that if you're going to be violent, I don't want to be involved. Um, we know from... Um, Eve of the Daleks he didn't want to get the police involved but here we can see that where the threat warrants it he is willing to work with the military yeah because I think I think Troughton was kind of starting to be a bit like 
kind of where people get the idea that the doctor's a pacifist from in some ways hmm. um, so it's great to see that he is actually willing to work with the military when the threat warrants it like I th- there are times where like I think Troughton is kind of an overlooked doctor in some regards because and again it's bringing um, Bill Hartnell back into the equation is hmm. that I sometimes think that because he, unfortunately as we've talked before William Hartnell uses the measuring stick for like oh how bad things used to be hmm. that some of the stuff that Troughton's doctor does kind of slips under the radar a small bit because people view him a bit more fondly and I think that there are times where Dash where Troughton's doctor is a small bit more violent than Bill's doctor Mm. in terms of some of the actions he takes now obviously there he's not kind of you know dusting his hands afterwards and kind of going well that takes care of that but it's like it's you know you're not a holy pacifist and so like you know when sometimes someone comes at you with the more aggressive stance you know pull up the mirror there a sec you know yeah um we, we mentioned that he has a sort of like a science pals thing with Anne. Mm-hmm. um we do see and again the opening part of this episode um of the story rather once they've closed the door or whatever of the TARDIS, we do get to see his relationship with Jamie, which I think is fantastic. Personally, I don't ship them, but I think the bromance between the two of them is undeniable. Oh, the abs- dynamic absolutely. between Fraser and Patrick is... I think it's probably... Up, I think of the dynamics I've seen so far, it's probably the most relaxed and natural. Hmm. Of possibly all of them, I'll be I, frank. Yeah, no, I, I was like, can I still be petty? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, it's going to be a long episode, guys. Yeah. Um, no, like, I, I agree, because, like, there's just something, as like, as much as it pays me to say this, you know, compared to Doc Bill and Ian, mm. there is always that level of, you know, smart alecky between the yeah. two of them or like, like the, 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 the the jabbing comment where here it's like it's just, I don't know if you call it avuncular it is just a really really good friendship yeah I think Doc, Bill and Ian had a very antagonistic relationship to start out with they had some great science bros moments but for the most part it was travelling companions yeah. do you know maybe you could go so far as to say like bodyguard in some respects for Ian but in that TARDIS crew or cruise the doctor's main friendship was with Barbara yeah not with Ian um so I think it's almost sad seeing how carefree this doctor is with Jamie and kind of going poor Ian that doctor didn't even get his name right yeah there there's there's something kind of almost like Picard Guinan esque about their relationship in the sense of like you, you can't really label it other than saying it's just a really solid friendship. Mm. The one thing about Jamie and the Doctor's friendship, though, is that it really puts in contrast the Doctor's relationship with Victoria, which is not the same. No. I think if you take this, if you take Tomb of the Cybermen, and you kind of put them together, you can really see where the Doctor sees himself in Victoria's life. Jamie is a friend. Victoria mm-hmm. is a ward. And I've said this before. Yeah. And you can really see that in the way that he treats her in this story. 
and in the way he emphasizes to Jamie how it'll be Jamie's job to take care of her. Yeah. Do you know when we get I'll get on to, when we get to Professor Travers later I'll I'll circle back on this again but I think this story more so than the others really cemented the fact that Victoria is a ward. Hmm. And not a friend. And not to say you can't be both, but primarily she was in she was entrusted into his care. There are times that she doesn't feel like a, a crew member. Yeah. Yeah. Um So yeah, I mean other than that, I, I agree it's a solid performance. He got along well with pretty much everybody, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was great. Um yeah, no, outstanding performance from Patrick. And like you know those things around you know why are you worried about Shirley breaking into the TARDIS and like no one can break into the TARDIS yeah. like that I think was just a I'll get to that more with they needed something to do with Shirley and that's that's all that is to me. So will we move on to the companions of the piece. Indeed, indeed. So we obviously have Jamie and Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have some story-based companions. So you had on your list Travers, both Professor Travers and Anne Travers, Colonel Lethbridge-Stewart, Captain Knight, Private-slash-Driver Evans, and then we have an interesting conversation at the end. Yeah, because, and like... No, like, you know, there were times like where Evans, he, he like, you know, he treaded that... Doc Hollywood, um, sorry, Doc Holiday, the uh, line, you know, where it's like, yeah, you're an agent slowest. Like, if it wasn't for the fact that you're comic relief, you'd be a villain. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. If it wasn't for that he was comic relief, he would just be a character to me. Well, okay, yeah, prominent character, like. Yeah, um, yeah so I think that's the newly created thing that we have. Um, so, will we do uh, Jamie and Victoria first and then make our way down the line? Yeah. Cool. Cool. So, should we do, who would you, um, now we mentioned her there in terms of like, you know, not feeling like at times a companion. So maybe Victoria's a good one to start off this one often. Yeah. Um, Victoria is very much treated like a child in this story and not just by the doctor and Jamie. Um, I suppose I can bring the Travers bit in here as well. Like Travers treats her like a child as well. Mm-hmm. Though he does make like some comments about how she's actually older than him <laughs> and stuff like that, which I love. It's very sweet. Um, but she is very much treated like a child, which I think is it's good for establishing where she fits in the crew dynamic, you know, and to have that cleared up. But I kind of wanted. I think this was a story that could have really ramped her back up to those first few stories she was in. Do you know, in terms of her presence, because she was hypnotized by the great intelligence before. Mm-hmm. And so I was waiting for something there. And it never happened. Yeah. Like- <laughs> for six episodes, I was sat there going, and Victoria's going to make a comment, or even if she had a breakdown, right, as annoying as that would be, at least it acknowledges the fact that. Out of everyone, she actually has the stronger connection to the great intelligence mm-hmm. than anyone else in this situation. Yeah, I guess was it's. I think it's, it's almost like you know Harry Potter and Voldemort type thing, the occlumency mm. type stuff. Yeah. Um, like, I, I, the thing about about Victoria in this in this time is that 
Now, say unlike last week's story where, yes, she was in a reduced role, but I thought she had some really, really good moments in it. Mm. Here, again, in a reduced role, but this is, like, for me, it's a very poor showing for Victoria because I think it would go... It's kind of... I think it is kind of against character that after being around the Doctor and Jamie for so long and their reluctance to talk about anything with the TARDIS that she discusses it a bit freely with Chorley especially when he's been shown time and time again in her presence to be a bit of a skeeve so um yeah like I think part of that just goes back to her being presented as a child who doesn't know any better mm-hmm. which doesn't really make sense or like you could maybe chalk it up to the fact that like Travers and Anne are there and they told Anne and like Travers has kind of vouched for this group do you know but yeah I think it, it's overly childish I think what's that like, the only positive I can really say about her in this story not that okay, the negative is that she's underutilized as per usual mm-hmm. that's the main negative um the positive is that like we get to see again she is just as protective of the doctor and Jamie as they are of her and while it's kind of presented a little bit like a child overhearing half a conversation and running away, um, the fact that she does go off in search of the Doctor and Jamie when she thinks that actually the people on this base are against them and like protecting the Doctor and Jamie is her top priority, um, I think is great. And I don't think we get to see enough of that with Victoria. Do you mm. know, we don't ever get, to, other than her going off to find them. <laughs> We never actually get to see her working on anything that will protect them, do you know? Or saving the day, really. We never get to see her solo adventure as such. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but one person who's, unless you've got someone, somebody else to say about Victoria, who, nope. the person that has a huge solo adventure in this at multiple times is Jamie. Jamie must protect. It is what Jamie does. <laughs> It is. Uh, also putting uh, Her Majesty's armed forces to shame. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, like, oh no, like, I don't think it's wise. Well, fuck it. I'll go, I'll go on with Ochi, you know? <laughs> um, what I love I, about Jamie, and like you kind of mentioned it with the Doctor, but it's great about Jamie as well, because again, putting Jamie in context, right, of a young man from the 1860s or whatever. I love how you can team him up with pretty much anybody. And you still have solid material, you know, good interactions, or at least interesting interactions. Like, there's never a dud with Jamie being paired up with someone. He's 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 fairly solid, and we see that a lot in this episode. Like, he's with Evans for a while, and he's with Travers for a while, and he's with... I almost said the brick. <laughs> He's with Lethbridge Stewart for a while, and you can sort of see him like breaking off with different people at different times. And he has really good dynamics with everybody, do you know? And like, it's never, it's never an issue. Mm-hmm. No, like he's like, like I loved his uh, dynamic with the break. Or sorry, with Lethbridge Stewart, because <laughs> like it's like you could argue that it's oh no, it's just like the it's two Highlanders because Lethbridge Stewart is he's a Scot he's a Scotsman. He is. Um, it's like you know you could kind of argue that it's that but then again at the same time it's like like Lethbridge Stewart is 
more I suppose an anglicized Scott than he is an actual out and out Scott. Um, but no, he he's really good. Like he's like I love their team up. I thought their team up was great. Yeah. But as you say, Jamie, as we've seen time and time again, when he's paired up with someone, he's really, really good. He's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And oof, I think it's a case of like just the writers getting it right, but also Fraser Hines just continually bringing it with solid performances throughout, you know? Yeah, I think Fraser has a very natural rapport with everyone. Mm-hmm. I think he's just that type of person. Like I've seen him in interviews and stuff. He seems to just have a very natural, he seems very easy to get on with. Yeah, do you know? Um, I loved the, the moment where um, he's with Evans, and obviously the the web or the fungus is enclosing in on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Evans points out the tube map, and Jamie's like, "Hold on, there was fucking maps. Why didn't you tell me this earlier?" <laughs> And you could tell he's just like I am wandering around underground with a fucking idiot. But also I love the way like that he, um, you know, he just constantly fucking calls Evans on his bullshit, and Evans like you know, no, I had an attack of conscience. It's not right to leave you here yourself. And you just see Amy, Jamie kind of going, really? That's what you're going with? <laughs> oh Christ! Um, but what I also like is I, I like the fact that we get to see Jamie's cunning, you know, and his ingenuity like here, where it's like. He, up until the very end, he plays it very cool about the fact that he has Fred <laughs> ready to go, you know? Because like, you, you would think like that going, all right, fuck it, you know, it's it's actually the thing didn't work or whatever. We'll have to see how the Doctor gets out of this. Again, brilliantly done. Yeah. No, no, it, it was fantastic. It mm. was great. It was a really good performance from, from Fraser. His rambling is going to be fucking tough. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's going to be insane. So now we come on to our story-based companions. So what way do you want to do this? And what order do you want to go? So I have the Traverses. The Traverses. <laughs> and then I have Lethbridge. Basically, it goes Traverses. Yeah. Then it goes in order of rank, mm-hmm. except with staff going last. Yeah. Staff will be an interesting one. So. Yes. The Traverses. The Traverses. We've opened an, an apiary, people, as you can clearly tell. <laughs> uh, so, Travers Senior. Yeah, I think Travers Senior is a bit of a mixed bag in this one. Yeah, he's crazy old man, caring mm-hmm. father, and caring father figure with Victoria, and I'll get to that in a bit more detail in a second. Mm-hmm. Dedicated scientist, and then great intelligence mouthpieces. A lot, a lot of range there for. Um, Jack Watling to, to play around with. Also, but I would like to point out that I, I think he would disagree with you. He's, I am not a crazy old man. How dare you? <laughs> All my but stories. But as in, he yeah. has the crazy old man. Yeah, yeah. The crazy old man, but. Um, I need to be honest, though, right? So mm-hmm. one thing that bothered me, it didn't bother me in the story. I think the story went quite well. It bothered me in this character. And I'll be honest, I didn't duck points for it because it's just a characterization piece I didn't personally agree with. I love how we get to see a character from a previous story coming back. I think that was fantastic. Yeah. I'm a little sad that he spent his life focused on the robot Yeti rather than continuing his search for the real Yeti. Yeah. When I realized that, like, he, like, when we had the opening and you've got him in the museum or whatever, and he's talking about buying back the Yeti and the fact that he, he says it's a robot and he talks about the sphere. And I'm like, oh, you spent... You spent the last 30 years working on that. 
when at the end of the abominable snowman he was going after a real yeti and that kind of made me sad and it sort of in some ways it, it kind of goes against his character from the abominable snowman because at the end of that the focus was on the real yeti not the great intelligence creations because uh, I, I i initially thought about that you know and but i think as as it went on i think it was more so the reason he was so kind of focused on the robotic yeti is that maybe he was waiting for the day that the great intelligence would come back no, no. Again, it gets a bit of a stretch, but but as we've then seen, then don't sell the yeti. Yeah, you know? that, that's true. Um, but as we've seen time and again, like or we or we know time and again, the novelizations add these little extra layers to stuff. Hmm. And I think that when we discuss Staff Arnold, they probably would have added some extra layers to that as well. But um, I yeah, no, I think you know, I agree with you in the sense of like that. If that is what is the case, if it was just like, he got obsessed with. The robotic yeti it's there's something kind of very sad about it you know it's like you know um this great know, naturalist who suddenly yeah. becomes focused on science side of things yeah it's like uh, I mean, the, the, the wonder that you found is, is it just another thing now and the machinery has taken over or is it um yeah because the one he's like i had to figure out how it worked we didn't get that in Abominable, do you know? He yeah. he wasn't particularly interested in how it worked. You know, he was he, disappointed it wasn't a Yeti. <laughs> but he was actually more so focused on you know, saving the actual Yeti. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah so for me, that just it made me a bit sad when I was watching it. I didn't duck points for it because it's the same writers wrote both stories. If it had been a different writer who wrote this story, I probably would have ducked points for it hmm. as not being true to character. But it's but the same. The same. They're, they're, he's their creation, yeah. so like, you can't really judge. Um, I do love how he cares for Victoria. Yeah. Um, I think the way he takes care of her, the way he speaks about her to Anne, I think is very, very sweet because he clearly remembers meeting her mm. so long ago. And the fact that he knows and remembers that Jamie and the Doctor are the only people she has left in the world. Yeah. And you kind of get the sense that if anything had happened to Jamie or the Doctor, he would have taken her in. Yeah, no, I, I get that impression. And I think, you know, I think there are times where like, the facade slips and it is Jack talking to Deborah. Mm. Especially, like, you know, in their scenes together. Like, you know, and of course, Deborah being a complete bitch laughs at her father, you know, when, he, <laughs> when he's burying his heart and soul. You want a grateful child. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that's really sweet. And it, it stems up into another thing that I like about Professor Travers is um, in comparison to some other fathers we have seen, you know, particularly going back to your man who lives in Whitstable, Maxstable, that's the one. Yeah. Um, you know, who clearly didn't give a shit about his daughter and science yeah. Science came first. And to be honest, even Victoria's own father, who, yeah, cared about her a lot, but, you know, still went along with yeah with terrible things. Um, Professor Travis clearly recognises his own daughter's scientific brilliance, mm. and he has absolutely zero problem handing off tasks to her that she is better suited for. No. Like, this is something they worked on together. And you can imagine, or I can imagine sort of her growing up and him yeah. showing her how these things work and stuff. And, like, I love the idea that the Doctor is like, you know, well, the control unit was Professor Travers. 
but the disabling unit was yeah. Anne's. Yeah. And that they each had their own invention and it played together. I thought that was lovely. And it's, it's nice to see um, an older character in the show be very respectful of his daughter's scientific brilliance whilst of a woman's scientific brilliance. Because bearing in mind, Knight does make some comments to her. Yeah. And it's like, no, like that's why you're, you know, um, was it that's why you're hanging out with Pamela and her fucking five friends tonight <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> I don't know what's funnier the fact that you used that joke or the fact yeah. that you forgot what the joke was and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it took you a second to put it together um, <laughs> was it? handy handy no. <laughs> um, <laughs> moving on um Anne. I thought Anne was great. I actually have very little to say about Anne because Anne was great. <laughs> um, she's clearly a brilliant scientist. Mm. And like I said, you know, you get the sense that she sort of grew up at her father's knee, as it were. Um, I'll be honest, I was concerned at several points that she was going to be a great intelligence spy because she grew up around this stuff. And again, thinking back, like when we talked about the Abominable Snowman, I said the Great Intelligence reminded me of that thing from the X-Men cartoon. Oh, the Shadow King. The Shadow King. And I sort of imagined like the, like, the Shadow King sort of had a thing with Storm as a child. Yeah. I sort of imagined a bit of a parallel with Anne as a child growing up with this stuff that maybe it would have invaded her mind a little bit. Um, I'm glad it wasn't true, though, because she's awesome. She is. Um, and I like the whole that, you know, she's, like, while she's sceptical about the exact nature of her dad's claims, like, she doesn't completely say, like, you know, I'm not saying you didn't see anything or you didn't encounter these things, but, you know, maybe, like, maybe what you saw, you did, like, isn't like, you know, maybe not everything you're saying is 100% actual factual, mm. you know? But one thing I, I got these kind of vibes from her, I got Helen Magnus vibes from her. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's totally a proto-Magnus. Yeah, so Helen Magnus, for anyone that isn't aware, is the main character from a great show called Sanctuary. Uh, it was Amanda Tapping's follow-up uh, from Stargate. Uh, it's a great brutal. show. It's uh, basically cryptozoology, uh, fucking monster of the week type thing, but really, really well done. Uh, so, yeah, I got really kind of cool vibes from her from that. And again, it's like, you'd nearly like to see a third part to this uh trilogy the third part of this great intelligence story with Anne being the yeah. Travers the next time around you know yeah no I, I thought Anne was great I thought she was a great introduction I thought she delivered a lot in the story and you know it's great to have uh, honestly, like talking about like women in, in STEM and stuff it's, it's great to see a female character you know delivering scientifically like if we think back to the Ice Warriors where mm. we had Garrett. Miss something or other. Garrett. Miss Garrett. While she was portrayed as someone of importance, she defers to the computer all the time. So I think Anne is a much better representation. Though I do wonder, does Anne have a doctorate? Because everyone just refers to her as Miss Travers. Or Anne. Maybe she wanted to keep things formal? Sorry, informal? Mm, maybe. I was, I was wondering. Please, Dr. Travers is my father. 
No, Mitchell. her father's Professor Travers. <laughs> ah, shit, you're... God damn it. <laughs> That's two jokes I almost ruined. I know, I ruined that one and I almost ruined the other one. Fuck it. <laughs> um, cool. So now on to the boys in uniform. Oh, Nick, I have missed you, you dashing, dashing man. The, must- the, the mustache has arrived. It has arrived. Oh, um... Look, I could wax poetic about Lethbridge Stewart forever, but Lethbridge Stewart specifically in this story. Um, bear in mind, right, I had never seen the story before. I watched it last night for the first time. So I hadn't seen the introduction of Lethbridge Stewart before. I'm obviously a big fan from later on, the stories that I watched uh, over the last 10 years or whatever. And I love that this is Lethbridge Stewart. Yeah. He is no nonsense. He takes charge and he just goes with it. And also, I love this. Is, this is something that I need to go back into Nick Courtney's book at some point. Right. Because I read it. The one that you gave me. The one where he's in a dress on the front cover. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I need to go back into his book at some point because one of the things I love about his character in this is you know he's one of those like he leads from the front which we've always said that like when it comes to our military-esque characters or like our commander leader characters we love that you know Mm -hmm. going back to moon base we had the same you know like leading from the front he leads from the front armed with only a pistol yeah they have a bazooka they have grenades they have i'm going to assume assault rifles i don't know the correct nomenclature for that and he has a pistol. He just walks around with his pistol. Yeah. It's like, dude, increase your firepower. <laughs> you look awesome. And you clearly have this stance that I can tell you right now you're going to see from this man for the next 20 years. Yeah. But like, <laughs> dude, give yourself a better weapon. <laughs> uh, no, but like, I think that's, again, like he he's... There are times where he's portrayed as like the typical gallant British officer, you know, again, leading from the front, you know, weather, weathering the storm with the chaps, you know, as a war, that type of stuff. And like, um, and again, those type of officers, they're not armed to the same extent as the men. But um, like what I love about him in this one is that he's got amazing confidence in his own abilities and the abilities of his men around him. And the the battle scene, which I thought was really well done. Oh, yeah, it was fantastic. It was very, very good. Um, when he comes back and he says like, that he's the last one surviving, um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Saving Private Ryan. I saw it like, when it first came out. I haven't seen it in years. So, uh, Tom Hanks's character, he has he's having a conversation with his like um, sergeant. And he's on about like you know I've lost X amount of men under my command, and he he knows them all by name. He knows all their faces, all this type of stuff. So I get the impression that Leopard Stewart is one of those officers where it's like each loss he takes very hard. The one thing I would say, I think that's true. I think there's one thing I noticed, which is the way he treats Evans, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it's because Evans didn't get stuck in. But he continually seems to forget who Evans is. (laughs) 
And I know that part of that was to sort of have us on edge about, oh my god, like, is he part of the great intelligence yeah. or whatever? But I sort of have this in mind where I think it's where he has this great time for his men when his men are doing their jobs. Yeah. You know, if you're a team player mm-hmm. and you get stuck in, he will have your back 110%. If you're some dope who doesn't obey rank and who doesn't observe correct protocols or whatever, he's not going to give a fiddler's monkeys about you day to day. I think if Evans had died, it still would have hit him and he probably would have felt bad about the way he treated him. But I think he has a little bit of a sort of there's a way things are meant to be done. Yeah, it's like you know, but again, it's a case of if you work for me, I'll work for you type thing. You mm. know? Yeah. Um, and it's like, um, but I, you know, I was speaking of Evans. I love the fact that he can see again, like Jamie. I don't know. It must be the Scottish thing that he can see right through Evans's bullshit. <laughs> it's like, like I have a better tactical viewpoint from here. Right. Get yeah. out from behind that board, Evans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he also has quite an open mind. He, do, he does, which I suppose, again, is something that we haven't seen in terms of some, you know, leader figures mm. uh, from the story-based companions. And it's like, you know, when Evans says, you know, like, you know, or not Evans, Knight is like, this sounds like harsh. And he's like, well, we've got to keep every avenue open. Yeah, I love that. I think it's fantastic. It is. And, like, he... I would say he's a very passionate person, but he's not given to snap decisions. Everything seems to be methodical and thought out. Mm. And also, like, he doesn't, at least in this story, um, he doesn't veer to extremes. No. Like, every, like, like I said, like, he has passion, but it's carefully delivered. And I suppose to wrap up the Colonel Leftbridge Stewart Appreciation Hour. <laughs> one last I suppose character moment from him that I absolutely love is that he is the final he's the ranking officer he's the final surviving member of the military party to try and stop this thing okay with that in mind he tells Jamie to open the fire escape door rather than telling Jamie to stay behind while he opens the fire escape door and oh like, very much I thought that was brilliant um, it, I thought the two of them working together at that moment was fantastic. Um, the way he was like, you know, like her encouraging Jamie, like, come on, man, like you know, yeah, put your back into it or whatever. But the fact that like, I I, I don't know if you do it because you know Jamie is the younger man, or if it's because Jamie may be a good, you know, a good player. I'll put that way. Mm-hmm. But Jamie is not a soldier. No. Lethbridge Stewart is a soldier and this is his job. Yeah. I don't think he would have ordered anyone else to stay either, though. No. Like, I guess you know, he's, he's not that particular, oh, the mission must go on. It's like, he's not that. It's like, no, Jamie, for all intents and purposes, as good of a fighter he is, maybe he's still a civilian and uh, my duty is to protect the civilians as well as yeah. do my duty. So, yeah. Um, as we said, we're going to be talking about this guy a lot more. <laughs> we are. Um and no one can see it now with Trisha grinning like the treasure cat so <laughs> I've missed him and yeah. I, I've never seen this story before so it was super uh, exciting I, I think it's actually kind of yeah it's it's nice that your first encounter with a character that you love is something that, you know you get to discuss now you know mm-hmm. it's the emotions are raw <laughs> um, so we come on to his subordinate Captain Knight 
Mm. Not particularly happy with being a subordinate, is he, Captain Knight? No, but at least he, you know, again, good soldier, fucking carries on. Uh, uh, yeah, but the level of disrespect is a bit ridiculous. They're, the eye roll, the yes, sir. Yeah. Like, the fucking... I, I, I just wanted Lethbridge, like, I knew he wouldn't, because Lethbridge George doesn't let that type of stuff get to him. Like, Knight was still doing his job, so Lethbridge George was like, mm. fine. This is the situation we have to deal with, and he, like, so he has enough confidence in his own abilities and in his own rank and his own power. Mm-hmm. But I was like, "Oh, just smack him up the head, will you?" <laughs> do you know what actually kind of reminds me of? Uh, and again, to bring Star Trek back into the equation, do you remember when they're doing the the war games and Data is put in command, and Worf has made his second his executive officer, mm. and he dresses him down for like again like the eye rolls and the back chat and all this type of stuff, whereas um, like. There are like I think it was Leftbridge Stewart could see that look Knight is a good officer and he'll do what I tell him to do. Or, yeah, he um but so I think I can overlook this situational uh disrespect but once if it carries on after once we get out of this and if he keeps on with this bullshit, yeah no, I'll break him down. Yeah. But I was just like Stop being such a dick, Knight Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Um, I love as well the fact that he continually gets shot down by Anne. It's great. <laughs> and first of all, like his thing with Anne is very. Um, I think that's probably the most representative of the times we probably got from this episode. It was like, oh, what made you want to be a scientist? Like, when I was little, I wanted to be a scientist. Like, <laughs> hello. <laughs> <laughs> It's not fucking rocket science. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's almost like, what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? Yeah. Um, but on the other side, though, he, he does come across as a quite competent and dedicated soldier. If possibly, and this is in comparison to Lethbridge Stewart and in relation to his responses to Lethbridge Stewart, a bit cautious. Yeah, like he's definitely an inside the box tinker, I think. Hence why, like, Lethbridge Stewart sort of gets the impression that Travers is running the show. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's almost a case of, like, you know, let, let the nerds do their thing, I'll take care of the soldiery type stuff. Um, that being said, though, I was a small bit shocked by his death. So was I. Um, because I was looking at him going, oh, they knocked him out, and I was like, oh, no. They, like, broke his spine. Yeah, like he, like he's, like at the end, like he's kind of broken in half, and he's lying over a table uh, at the end, and it's like I thought, like you know, at the end, like you know, he, you know, he'd still be having like the flirtatious banter with Anne and failing miserably, or maybe she might throw him a bone, or whatever it is. So, but like I think it's just it, it just it, it like it happens. It's like there's very little preamble. It's very sudden, so it is quite a bit of a shock. And like you know, the doctor like very like ineffectually fucking you know trying to punch a yeti to get away from him. Uh, again, whatever you want to say about you know, uh, I guess we've said before whatever you want to say about maybe dodgy sets and you know silly production you know uh, values and rubber costumes, the writing and the acting makes it a very compelling and dramatic sequence. Oh, it does definitely like one hundred and ten percent. Yeah. And it's something that we we have seen and we will continue to see throughout the show. So, (laughs) Driver Evans, (laughs) who Paddy identified in our notes, is actually a private. Yeah. 
Because like like driver isn't a rank; it's an occupation. Like he's, he's still like an enlisted <laughs> I, I man. I think the reason why like the the, the Tardis Phantom Wiki is where I got a lot of my my notes and stuff. I yeah. think one of the reasons why they went with Driver Evans, like it's yeah. literally in their cast. It's Driver's Evans. I hate to I hate to actually double check on Britbox and yeah. see um, how is it actually presented, but <sighs> I think it's because he keeps reiterating the fact that yeah. he's just a driver. Yeah. yeah, I shouldn't be here. Driver, I am. See, <laughs> and like I, I think the fact that I, like, the minute you're introduced to him, it's like you are one of the most Welsh people I have ever seen. Like, he is singing, like, proper, like, you know, like, Valley's fucking apparatus as he's going down the tunnels. And I'm like, uh, he, he, but uh, he reminds me of, there's a, uh, there's a sketch in Monty Python. It's like where uh, a soldier comes in and he's like, you know, uh, I want to leave the army. Uh, he goes like, are you a pacifist? No, I'm a coward. I was like, why did you join the army in the first place? Which is what we have here with Evans. It's like, you know, like, he's a complete... Like I, I think he's a complete coward, and it's like, right. why did you join the army? And it was like I was told I was like, and I can just imagine him kind of going, I was told I would see sunny exotic locations. I think he was told he get free room and board. Probably. They'll feed you and they'll house you. Job good. <laughs> free travel through the London Underground. Granted, it's on foot, but it's still free travel nonetheless. <laughs> Was it just me, or were you also hoping for, like, an accidental save the day from him? Yeah, like, you know, falling over a plug socket, or, you know... Or him doing something that, like, seems completely stupid in, like, with everyone going, what the hell did you do? He's like, oh, well, like, this wire was running across the floor and someone would trip over it, so I plugged it out and, like, put it away, or, like, something... In keeping with his character, he's not dumb. Like you said, he's just like he's not a soldier, no. really. So not at heart. So I wouldn't say he's dumb. I don't think he's a dumb character. He's a coward, um, but he clearly has his priorities. And mm. I think it would have been nice if there was an accidental save today by him doing something completely <laughs> innocuous <laughs> and not realizing that he was saving the day. <laughs> Pull the Homer. <laughs> yeah. Oh. But um, uh, again, like I, 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 like as much as he annoyed me, like you would kind of wish that he'd be like a recurring character, like, uh, like to every time we might see the brig going forward. It's like you know, why is Evan still here? <laughs> <laughs> oh. So that leaves Staff Sergeant Arnold. Yeah. So, okay, you messaged me and asked me. Okay, first of all, right. First of all. Okay. We discussed this a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. that the way it was going to go so that I'm not swayed in my viewing of the episode was you would send me the list of names. Yes. And then after I watch it, I'll look at your notes and put them where they're meant to be, mm-hmm. which you did yesterday. Mm-hmm. And then you included a caveat yeah. with Arnold. So as soon as in the episode they said, oh, there's a spy in the base, I was like, oh, it's Arnold. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> See, okay, I, I apologize for that. But, like, right now, my notes read, Staff Sergeant Arnold, talk to Trisha about this one. <laughs> yeah, so, um, let's talk about Staff, because uh, Staff is an interesting character, because I don't know if you picked up on this, so the Doctor suggests that he was overtaken at the very beginning, like, possibly before the Doctor ever turned up. Yeah, because this is the thing that it's... Con- Right, this is the thing that's confusing me, okay? Is that 
on screen reviewed ev- or sorry staff as being you know killed or taken over or whatever after he goes into the webbing but at that point the traitor has already been fucking things up now I went on to TARDIS wiki as well and it indicates that he was killed at a prior thing but that prior event is never mentioned at any point in the story well it is it's implied because that's where the previous commanding officer died but they didn't say they, they just mentioned that he died they didn't mention that anyone else died well no but the purpose of that conversation was nice describing how he took over command mm. to everyone else Arnold's didn't die so why would it come up yeah true but um, like for me it was a case of like I took one at the doctor's because I was like he, the doctor was like he was probably one of the first men to go down mm. which means long before the doctor ever arrived which makes him an interesting character because that suggests that he was under the control of the Great Intelligence the entire time. Yeah. And what I think is probably more likely is that he probably didn't even realise that himself. I think the Great Intelligence reanimated him, but I think he left him as a sort of his eyes and ears for a lot of the story. And had moments where the intelligence took over to force him to do something. And then it's sort of back to staff again. Because like if you if you compare him to the previous character we've seen in this role, which is uh the Abbot yeah. from uh the Abominable Snowman, who was clearly doing shady, dodgy shit from the get-go. Mm. Staff is fully involved, trying to help everybody, like Either the Great Intelligence is playing like the weirdest long game ever, or he was letting staff do what staff would do anyway, yeah, and just taking him over at crucial moments. And that's the way I read it. It's so, like for me, in terms of like where we put the character, I put him as a companion who had a bad end. Yeah, because like I was there, kind of going like, well, like i can't imagine that the great intelligence would be this altruistic to its enemies throughout the entirety of the story like because there are times like where like arnold is in charge of like you know small squads of men and he leads them into precarious situations but they're but they they always survive like they never Mm. that's like "Mm, that that doesn't seem like the great that's where i think that he's a sleeper agent i think he doesn't realize what he's doing and it's only when he actually went into the webbing that the Great Intelligence started taking greater control. I think when he returned to the base after the webbing, I think it was possibly a little bit of both. Mm. Do you know, because like, I don't remember what happened when I went into the webbing. The Great Intelligence would have come up with something to mm. fill that gap. Plus, seeing how they were the only two in the base when the, um, the webbing came in, it would have been just very easy for him to like fucking chuck Evans into the room. Mm. So, which he didn't. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think I yeah. think it's more of a sleeper agent. Okay. All right. Yeah. No. See. Okay. My big issue with it was like going. There's no real proper indication as to when he died, so. It's like, what what is the full nature as to what's going on, and. I, I think that was just kind of the the frustrating part for, for me was just trying to figure out that's why I got cut so so common I love Arnold I thought he was a great character mm. uh, I loved his interactions with everyone um, and like he, he did seem like he had some great interactions with Jamie and he had some great interactions with the Doctor and it was like this is just like 
if you have was it Jack Woolgard, if you like either he's playing the great intelligence pretending to be Arnold, which again is phenomenal acting, or he's just created a really really good character in Arnold, which yeah. I I was really sad um, that he died because I imagine, like I said, I imagine that most of what we saw from Arnold was actually Arnold. Yeah, on the side of the angels. And the only bits that were the great intelligence were the bits where we saw like a hand, yeah, moving things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in terms of when did he die? Um, I think the whole idea of the great intelligence using his corpse, I think, is. I don't. I, I think that was just poor writing, to be honest. Um, my read of it is that he became a sleeper agent, as in he had the great intelligence in his mind in that initial attack with the previous commanding officer. I don't think he died there. I think the closest he came to dying before his final death was probably in the webbing. Okay. Um, that that's my read on it but it seems like he was a great guy <laughs> and like watching through most of it I was like he's really cool but I know that he's the bad guy because Paddy told me he's the bad guy sorry I, I, I'm like the subtitles for the thing when I, you know, the Norwegian guys come up and it's just like you know, they speak in Norwegian but if you turn on the subtitles it's like you know, stay away from it it's a thing I was like oh that's the fucking movie rune right there <laughs> um, do you know who he actually kind of reminds you of do you remember Badlands Army the, the fucking oh yeah yeah, yeah. The it's lads army not bad you keep calling it bad lads army no, it's just cha- lads army no they changed it they changed it from season two when they started oh did they up, right, <laughs> when they started bringing in like the the undesirables alright that was okay. a great show it was it was fantastic <laughs> what a random YouTube rabbit hole that was <laughs> oh, fucking stuff sure actually oh. one of the guys you know he signed up and uh, he did two tours in Afghanistan really yeah cool so we now come on to our villains and we have beefcake yetis <laughs> whatever you like <laughs> whatever you want to call them like uh the great intelligence and i've thrown in chorley into the mix yeah again chorley was on your list and other than being a red herring chorley was a waste of time I don't think Chorley was a villain. He doesn't actively do anything to stop anybody. He doesn't actively hinder the story in any way. He disappears at one point. That's about it. He's a bit of a shitstirer. Um, uh, but, but do you know who he actually reminds me of? And Freddie Lowndes from Manhunter slash Red Dragon. Yeah, but like, I, I wouldn't class him as a villain. If anything, he's a character that's in the story a lot contributes fucking nothing and his time could have been given to somebody else that, that's my read on him because yeah, like, like, the reason I have him as a villain is like because like he's just like I, like he rather than you know oh is he the traitor I, I didn't think he was the traitor at any stage but I thought that he was just kind of fucking stirring the pot just to stir the pot a small bit or even like just to kind of cast suspicion away from himself and it was like I just hate those type of characters. They really do my fucking head in. And I agree, like that. You, know, it's a stretch to kind of say that he's an actual out and out villain. But I just hate those type of characters. Yeah, like when it got to the point where he wasn't anything to do with the great intelligence at all, I was like, okay, cool. This character is just a waste of time. Slightly, slightly more engaging than was a professor whose name I can't remember from Tomb of the Cybermen. That, oh, true, yeah. Yeah, slightly more engaging <laughs> than him, but not as engaging as... <laughs> as uh, literally everybody else in this cast. Yeah, exactly. 
even like Weems was more interesting. Um, yeah, we, the we, corporal we, was more. Inter- the other corporal was Weems and Blake. Yeah, Blake. Blake was more interesting. Blake looked really familiar. Like they were way more interesting than Shirley. Yeah, you know, particularly because Blake says in one scene that they don't have any grenades, and yet when he goes over the top with Lethbridge Stewart, he suddenly has grenades in his pocket. Oh, you, you meant liar, these Blake! You piece of shit. Oh, you meant these grenades? Yes. <laughs> um, Weems is dead, you fucker. <laughs> <laughs> oh Christ! So uh, the Yetis. Ah, oh, I see. They've solved their vulnerability to sticks problem in a big way. <laughs> um, like you said, they do look like elves with guns. I think that their appearance is a huge improvement over the eyeless Furbies. I don't know if it's their appearance as such. I think their presence is better. I would have preferred if they didn't need the guns. Mm-hmm. That I think... Because clearly those, ju- those guns had to be manufactured. So that could have been a built into the Yeti thing. Mm. Um, but then you've got a weird spider-owl hybrid, which is creepy. And I'm going to stop now. Spider, <laughs> spider baby. It's got the body of a spider. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the long run, though, the V2 is better. They're more intimidating. They're way more effective. And you actually consider them to be a viable threat because they're not taken down by sticks. Mm-hmm. And another thing about them is, so like, yeah, as we said previously, they look like eyeless Furbies. Whereas this time around, they have a more like you know owl bear appearance. But the earth, but the thing that makes it the owlish is that they do seem to have a predominant beak, mm. but they also have these really luminous, giant eyes. Yeah, and it they're used really effectively by the fact that it's in a fucking underground dark tunnel. I don't know about you, but I think if I saw that coming towards me with those eyes coming down a dark tunnel, I would shit myself. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, was just, uh, I watched a really good movie with Maggie Smith there recently and it was like, I'm not one for hyperbole, ladies and gentlemen, but for the first time in my life, I had that caca scared out of me. <laughs> what movie was that? Uh, it's Murder by Death. It's a piss take of like a whodunit where parodies of like five famous fictional detectives are brought to a house to solve a murder that hasn't happened yet. But like Alec Guinness is in it. He plays a blind butler. <laughs> Maggie Smith is in it, looking absolutely fucking fine, I must say, as a drinking socialite slash detective. Uh, like it's like just a really really funny movie, but I just like I love that hyperbole line. The Great Intelligence really knows how to play the fucking long game, though. Like all of this to drain the Doctor's mind—that's fucking dedication to a cause. And I have to ask you a question: Would it have been better to just potentially possess the Doctor? Because as we saw in the Abominable Snowman, he did have the beating of him in a battle of mental power. Yeah, and clearly the Great Intelligence was much more powerful here. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I think, I think this story, probably more so than any other to date, we've had a few that have sort of mentioned that the Doctor being the you know big mythical thing of the universe. Mm-hmm. We've had it mentioned once or twice before. I think this story really sort of plays heavily into that. Like, you could easily move this story into New Who, and it probably would work just as well. Um, And that's not a slight against New Who, it's just the Doctor has made a more sort of prominent intergalactic figure in New Who than he would have been in Classic. At at least at this stage, 
at least at this stage of classical. Um, but yeah, it's like, why not? I suppose the only way I could think to explain it is that the great intelligence got the best of the doctor, or was getting the best of the doctor in the Bama Snowman through Padmasambhava. Mm-hmm. Who himself had great mental abilities. Yeah. In this story, there is not a Padmasambhava equivalent. And each of the people that the Great Intelligence takes over, he only takes them over for small... Like He doesn't have a melding that he had with Padmasambhava over a number of years. Mm. Um, which is why I think it would have been cool if maybe Anne had actually been the spy the whole time. That the Great Intelligence sort of built that connection with her over her, the years from yeah. her childhood. Um, that might have been a bit too creepy, though. I think it would have been awesome, but um, yeah. No, although like I just had like because I thought here like that you know he like the Grand Intelligence has the power to raise the dead, and I can just imagine like uh, Staff Arnold in like that sort of Game of Thrones Night King thing where it just like raises its hands and all the fucking soldiers that were covered in webs just get up. Yeah, that to me, I didn't focus too much on it when I was watching it, but I think that comment to me. Uh, a bit corny you know it doesn't really make sense in the story that like he reanimates the dead corpses I'm like that reanimating a dead corpse would require way more effort than just possessing possessing somebody (laughs) but I wonder if it's just they were trying to find a way to describe it and just reanimating their corpse is probably the best as in was reanimating their corpse their way to describe the owner of that body not really being present i actually had to stop myself there was because i nearly said oh it's much more effort than possessing a living corpse and i was like <laughs> you jackass <laughs> but yeah um we haven't seen the last of the great intelligence though nope at least i don't think we have <laughs> it's well, suggested we, that we, we haven't <laughs> we know that it's been banished back from whence it came yeah um so it could come back again the dark corner right behind you know like that crux or just where the couch meets the wall that's where <laughs> um, that one thing where like something falls out the couch you're like I'm never getting that back yeah pretty much <laughs> oh my god the missing evidence in the McCarnagle case he was innocent <laughs> either that or like he goes into the uh, stolen sock section of the tumble dryer So we've gone through our characters, we've had some interesting discussions, we've said hello to a fan favourite, I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to seeing more of him again, and now we come to our overall, where we give our thoughts on the story as a whole and give our score out of five. So Paddington, I'll hand to you first, thoughts and score out of five, please. So, on initial viewing, I gave this a 4.25. Okay, and I'll go into it uh, to the detractors there in a sec. But what I will say is that the hits just keep on coming in terms of this season. What a oh, yeah. fa- what a fantastic story! Like and like, it's just been ridiculously strong. Probably one of the strongest seasons as a whole we've seen in a, since. I started. had I had a look mm-hmm. before um, I joined our call, and so far, 
on average, this season is the highest rated one for the two of us. Yeah. Just like season great. two comes in very close, but this is the highest so far. Yeah, it's just great, great storytelling. Um, but like, and I know like that we've said that the recurring theme of this particular season is based under siege. Hmm. And what keeps it fresh is actually really good writing, great directing, and fantastic characters and acting. So like, it's just the whole thing is like, yeah, you're utilizing the same plot over and over again. But it's it's done differently by the characters you get invested into whole new story arcs and relationships and we've got you know one of the most famous men with a mustache in the world now you know? so it's just um it's great um so as i said like this is probably like again another fantastic supporting cast like, oh yeah and it's just like and that's again f- when you have to rely on like the, the tardis crew while it's great to see the characters who get their moments to shine it's like you know, sometimes it's just you know it can be a bit repetitive I think we need to see other people giving it 110% and playing it straight and not just the same three people we see playing it straight every week yeah exactly and I get like some fantastic moments from Trouton here uh, in terms of like his reaction to Knight's death. And I know I commented last week about Faraya's being like, you know, the face of collateral damage. Mm. Here we have Knight dying in line of, you know, in line of duty. But the Doctor still takes a difficulty because like he was with the Doctor at the time. Um, the, the, the person in the story that I would actually say probably signifies that the most is actually Weems. Yeah. Because you can fellow. tell the impact that Weems' death had on everybody. Yeah, because he he's a he's a young like he's a young fella like he's what can't be more than his like fucking twenties like early twenties. Yeah. But and you see like when they're saying like we're taking out Weems' body or whatever, that like everyone, even Lethbridge Stewart, who doesn't know Weems, hmm. they all they're very solemn. Yeah. Um, great villain like uh like the great intelligence, fantastic concept for a villain. Executed again really, really well here. A huge improvement to the Yetis, which is also fantastic. And I know I talked about, you know, like having the necessity to have like supporting actors, but like again, just fantastic uh, from our core trio. Um, now, the deductions I did have were the Doctor's tantrum, because that, like, I thought, like, no, that, that, that is like you, it's you being a bonehead and you throwing a hissy now over the fact that the plan that you told no one about went up in flames and you know no one's going to blame but yourself I think uh, Victoria's out of character silly in this moment over telling Chorley about the secrets of the TARDIS despite the fact that we've seen multiple occasions of you know where she's there when the Doctor and Jamie are kind of kicking each other under the table not to say anything and I had initially docked it for the confusion around Arnold's or my confusion over Arnold's uh, like is, when, when is he possessed is he possessed what's the, the the thing here so what I think I might do is I might actually bump it up to a 4.5 mm. because it was probably me again missing something that other viewers may not actually kind of or like story points that people might have kind of that make me kind of go oh that makes much more sense <laughs> so uh, yeah I think I'm going to bump it up to a 4.5 um which after last week, like I don't think we've ever had two fives in a row. I know I've given no, two fives in a row. You have, but, but yeah, we've we've never as a, a duo given two fives in a row. But interesting to see what happened this week. Mm. How long is twenty minutes? Uh, 
Okay, after someone who's watched like um, a ten episode arc of Dragon Ball Z that supposedly takes over the space of ninety seconds, <laughs> it's like you know, time is yeah. indescribable. Yeah. So a thing I find with TV shows, right? And this is just an observation; it's not really a criticism. Is I hate when TV shows introduce the concept of a set length of time. Mm-hmm. Because they often then go on to do a number of things you could never do in that length of time. <laughs> like I had to laugh at the beginning when the doctor is like looking at his watch and Jamie has a watch as well which I didn't realise until this episode. And the doctor's like we'll meet back here in and he looks at his watch and goes a couple of minutes. <laughs> and I'm like <laughs> and then I was like oh, the great time's like you have 20 minutes. They did so much shit in 20 minutes. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. I was like, and then the 20 minutes ended and like the great intelligence was like, oh, I suppose I'll go run them up. So, um, <laughs> I suppose it's, al- it's almost like when you're, when you're RPing and it's like, you know, it's uh, like, you know, the, f- the fight took us an hour, but realistically only 30 seconds elapsed. It was like, for fuck's sake. Oh yeah. But I, I always want, and like, we're going to go back to at some point, you know, we'll do like a mash podcast something um i always go back to the episode of mash where like they had like the timer of how long you can keep like this clamp on for a certain length of time or whatever it was mm-hmm. and they actually had the timer on the screen counting down and it was like exactly like the the episode was exactly as long as the timer was ticking and i'm like oh why can't all the stories have that and then i realized that like that's not always feasible no. But at least to have the action that takes place in 20 minutes be the amount of action that feasibly could take place in 20 minutes. <laughs> it's like um, they did it in the episode, uh, sorry, they did it in the episode 42 uh, mm. during David Tennant's run. But um, like, I, I don't know, I think that's a, it's an incredibly difficult thing to kind of gauge and you have to kind of suspend disbelief a small bit, especially when things are happening like obviously you know an episode of Doctor Who at this stage is only 24 minutes long but we're told we're shown like three distinct stories that are happening at the same time so these are technically all happening within the same 30 second time limit I suppose yeah um, just say it's an hour do you know like you're the writer you can make it as long as you want <laughs> it's just very like, you know very kind of weird you have 39 minutes and 15 seconds in which to do this seriously though this is another Great showing from season five. Mm. The introduction of Lethbridge Stewart alone was going to make me love this, right? I think you probably knew that already. Yeah. But I actually really enjoyed the story overall. Again, similar to last week, it's another story where I'm like, cool, load up the next one, load up the next one, load up the next one. Um, My downsides were, again, I felt Victoria was underused. And it was high. The reason why this is. I've docked points for it this week and I didn't dock points for it last week. The reason why I docked points for it this week is like you said, there was no real optic. Like the, the you yeah. know, last week, you know, she was going to brain Salamander, not knowing that it was the doctor and stuff. She didn't really have that this week. And also so much time was given to Chorley that I'm like, why create this waste of space of a character? who isn't even needed and like he contributes nothing his presence adds zero value like 
literally nothing and then not give good character moments to Victoria. Do you know? Like maybe have Victoria and Anne develop a good friendship with each other, like both their fathers being scientists and growing up in that type of environment or something. And actually, I suppose, use Chorley's waste of time to to the detriment of Victoria's character by having her be make a fool of herself. Yeah. Do you know? And like, it, I don't know, that bothered me. Um, because, again, Victoria's prior connections to the Great Challenge is actually probably greater than anybody else's. Um, even the Doctor. She just so, doesn't, she doesn't have a lightning bolt shaped scar to show it off. Yeah. Um, but for me, ding, 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 4.5. Nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So we are matching this time around. I think season 5 has been the quality of the stories has been phenomenal and I can understand why the BBC have put so much time and effort into, like, they did the, like, because I was asking you a couple of weeks ago, um, why are they releasing the Web of Fear again? I already bought the Web of Fear once <laughs> on DVD. Why am I buying it again? And I can completely understand their desire to animate that missing third episode. Although, like, the BBC, um, recreation with the telesnaps is really good yeah like it, it's perfect um for a telesnap recreation but i can completely understand why they've been trying to recreate so many of the stories from this season mm-hmm. because it's just it's it's phenomenal it's been really really good and having a look at the averages this season overall now is 4.2 for you, 4.25 for me, and 4.23 overall. Looking back over previous seasons, like, th- there's really, from a scoring perspective, the closest probably would have been your season two was quite close, mm-hmm. and our season ones were both 4.16. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's been an absolutely stellar, stellar season so far. Yeah, I'll just take a look there at um, the Sezone and what have we got? What's the major difference? The only major difference I think was the Abominable Snowman, which I rated a slight bit higher than you. Oh, and Tomb of the Cybermen, which you rated slightly higher than I did. Yeah, like it's just like, uh, fan- again, just solid, solid story uh, telling this entire season. And I think the fact that David Whitaker has done a lot <laughs> in this season as well has got you know, absolutely nothing to do with it. Yeah, but like in fairness to the guys, I mean, the Abominable Snowmen and this story, um, mm. you know, like massive kudos to Mervyn Heisman and Henry Lincoln because mm. they were two solid stories. They really are. Um, I know we didn't give Abominable Snowmen as high, like we gave it a 3.75 and a 3.5, but like that's still really good, do you know? And actually, just thinking there as well, like just on the subject of the missing episodes, I think the same guy that recovered the Enemy of the World episodes recovered these ones. Mm. Um, I think his name was Philip Morris. Yeah. And one thing that, like, so for any Doctor Who, uh, avid Doctor Who fans that are actually listening to this, because I know that some of the people who have only gotten into Doctor Who because of the podcast. Hi, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> 
that a personal request please buy the dvds of the animated stories so that way more money can be funded to the animation department to do marco polo yes so we can get a william hartnell dvd uh, blu-ray box set yes hmm. no but i think this has been a great story as we said and so we say good riddance to the great intelligence for now (laughs) I needed to make it more dramatic than than the words just made Lisa it Um, so guys join us next week as the Doctor and Jamie and Victoria face the fury from the deep spooky (laughs) (laughs) until next time guys Bye.